Welcome to Soundtrack City. I'm Frankie. And I'm Misa. How are you guys? We've missed you. Yes, we've missed you. We are here. It is February. January is over. January sucked as usual. And we're here. Good things. Good things. How are you, Frankie? I am, well, trying not to die because my dog licked me. But, you know, besides that, I'm good. I'm good. February has started off pretty well. Um, you know, I get to be back at work, <laughs> so uh, that's good. And you know, I've I've gone to a store and being out, you know, with mask and everything, of course, to go pick up groceries. So that's exciting. Cool, cool, good thing. Staying safe, of course, being a good human, of course. Well, yeah, living it up in the quarantine the best way that I can, and only going out for you know needed and necessity. Things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Same. I wanted to ask, aside from the movie you're going to talk about today, have you seen any good movies lately? I started a movie on Netflix, but um, Angel and I don't agree on subtitles, and so we turned it off because I got angry because I couldn't understand it because it was in a different language, so therefore I need subtitles. Anyways, I believe it was called... um, Give me one second to find it. I'm blanking out right now. Why have you seen any good movies? Well, hang on. I want to get back to this subtitle thing. Subtitles are absolutely necessary regardless of language. I agree 100%. I apparently am just in the minority of my family because nobody else really agrees. I don't know why. Hang on. I don't understand. Wait, what language was this movie? So does Angel understand the language that it was in and therefore didn't need? It's in French. Apparently he took French on the side. I mean, I'm the one. I took seven years of French and I can understand everything. I just, I don't, I don't, even if you know the language, like don't, there are moments where like actors talk too low or the music is too loud or there's other things happening. Like you want to be able to understand what people are saying regardless. Thank you. And I just, my daughter likes subtitles. My son does not. Angel does not. Um, But like the rest of my family, it's kind of a hit or a miss. I've noticed that my sister and my niece like subtitles for like musicals and things like that. Kind of like a sing-along type thing, if you will. Sure. Hedwig style. Yeah, exactly. With the bouncing head and all. Yes. The wig. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the movie? I'm literally not finding it. I'm on Netflix right now trying to find it. I might have to go ask him what it was called. So um, basically the premise was he works in the Louvre and he um, was, I guess he borrowed money from like the mafia and um, he has to pay it back by helping them rob the Louvre where he works. Um and take this necklace that belongs to the queen. And so it was pretty intriguing so far. And then, like I said, we had to turn it off because I was just, I couldn't, we just, 
got into it about the damn subtitles. So. Well, y'all watch everything together, or are you just going to watch it on your own now? I'm going to watch it on my own. <laughs> I just, it literally happened the other day, so I just haven't had a chance to watch it, because of course I've been watching my movie, like, nonstop. Of course. Um, so that one kind of took a little back seat, but yes, I will definitely be watching it on my own with the subtitles. Nice, nice. Good for you. And I'm glad to know that I am not the, I mean, I don't know how everyone, I didn't realize it was such a a hot topic. Like, I guess it's kind of like those, either you like it or you don't type things. I haven't met someone who's kind of like an in-between, really, for subtitles. Yeah, I I don't know anyone who's in-between either. I feel like the majority of people I know prefer subtitles. Well, I am hanging out with the wrong people. Oh man, it's because you and I haven't watched movies together in a while. That's it. There you go. It has been. You know what? Even when we watch Rocky, we have the subtitles on. Fuck yeah, of course, had to. <laughs> like mandatory. I just don't get it. I don't get the mindset. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I just feel like if you don't have the subtitles on, you're gonna miss something. Exactly. And I don't want to miss anything. Plus, I like to rewind. Like if I didn't catch something, you know. Yeah. I totally understand. I'm on I'm on the same page. I'm glad you get me. So one movie that I recently watched that I absolutely loved, like I loved it, I laughed, I cried, I I broke down in tears. Like it was just amazing to me. It wasn't actually a movie, it was a documentary. Oh. You cannot kill David Arquette. <gasps> oh my god, I didn't know this was a out or existed. Where did you watch it? Give me all the tea. So it's on Hulu now. Okay. And the moment I found it, like, apparently it's been on Hulu since the beginning of the year, but I only recently stumbled upon it, like, maybe a week and a half ago. And so I was like, oh, fuck, let me, I'm going to watch this. And so it was already kind of late, which late doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Like, I go to, I tend to go to sleep, like, at 4 or 5 a.m. now. But it is a movie that I've been wanting to watch for a while, and I'd heard good things about it and everything, and of course, you know me. I love David Arquette. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, and I remember watching the trailer for this film on Reddit, like, months ago. Like, this was supposed to be premiering at South by Southwest in 2020 before South by Southwest got canceled. Because of COVID. Yes. And so 2020 was supposed to be, like, the year that this movie exploded. And I think that it... I hope everyone goes out and makes an effort to watch this film because it is fucking amazing. And it's it's mostly centered, of course, it's centered around David Arquette, who back in 2000, uh, when he was promoting Ready to Rumble, he won the WCW championship. And that was met with a lot of criticism. The fans were pissed. They were just like, what's this movie star doing walking in and, you know, nabbing this legitimate title that people like Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair have held and, you know, shit like that, you know? Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I didn't realize there was such an uproar about it. There, You know, there really was. And I actually, I'm on the same boat. Like, I did not realize how bad the backlash was because, of course, to me, I didn't watch WCW. WCW wasn't an option for me because I didn't have cable until after it died. And mm. I had heard sh- I had heard shitty things about WCW by the time I got into wrestling, so it didn't really seem worth it anyway. Um, so I never watched WCW. So any ridicule about it, I was just like, whatever. 
Um, but on top of that, like 2000, that's around the time that Scream 3 came out. I was already in love with the Scream films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already loved David Arquette. He was already one of my favorite actors. And so like to me, I thought it was kind of cool. Like I didn't give a shit. Like at, now in retrospect, I can see why they thought it was a good idea. Right. I feel like it was kind of like a promotion. Like we have someone in here who enjoys, you know, wrestling, the craft of wrestling. I think it was a fun idea on paper, but I don't think they really considered just how angry the fans would be. And the fans were pissed. Like they, they were not happy about it. Even David Arquette was like, that's a bad idea. But it's, you know, at the same time, they tell you they're going to make you the champion. Are you going to say no? Right. And so what the thing is about David, like even in even in being the champion, the, the paycheck that he got for being the champion for two weeks, he donated it to the families of Owen Hart and Draws and Brian Pillman. Oh, did he really? Wow. Yeah, he did. Like those are rest, two of those wrestlers who tragically passed away. And then one of them who has been paralyzed because of a, an accident during a wrestling match. And so David Arquette did not keep any of the money that he made when he was champion. He donated all of it to those three families. And people still shat on him. Of course, like, nobody cared what he did with the money. All they cared about was how he, quote, unquote, tarnished the title. Well, I still, I mean, to me, it would be like, wow, what a commendable guy. Like, what a stand-up guy. David Arquette is just so, he's so likable. And he really appreciates wrestling. And, you know, it. He just got a really bad rap for something that wasn't even his decision. Yeah. He just went along with it. Right, right. And so the documentary kind of follows him over the past few years because he still kind of feels like people resent him for that. And he's like, man, you know, people really shit on me for it. And he really is just trying to be a good guy. And he loves wrestling. And he loved wrestling. And he still does. And so in the documentary, he talks about how you know, he's an alcoholic and the wrestling thing affected his career. Plus he kind of had a, a reputation and, and kind of bit of an attitude that got him to lose credibility in Hollywood, if you will. And, mm-hmm. and so the documentary is basically about him becoming a professional wrestler for real this time. And so he goes through the training. He moves to Mexico. He wrestles in the streets at the intersections for cars to watch. Like what? he legit goes in there with luchadors and he's straight up learning luchador wrestling. Like he goes to a backyard wrestling thing and he just tries it out for the first time and they kick his ass. Like he lands on thumbtacks and he's just like, I have a lot of work to do. And so the documentary goes through his like journey and it's amazing to watch him go from like this beat up kind of has been looking and I hate to, it pains me to call him that because I don't see him that way. Mm-hmm. He sees himself that way. And it's just amazing to watch him rise up like he lost 40 pounds over the course of the film. He becomes a wrestler and he's straight up doing shows in Mexico, like flying off of ring posts and just like he's doing it like he's doing it and then it takes a turn and I'm not going to go into further detail uh I I think most people know by now that he delved into wrestling he's been delving into wrestling over the past few years Mm -hmm. um and so I'm not going to go into too much detail if you haven't seen the doc because I really want everyone to go watch it but there's a very pivotal moment in his wrestling career where everything changes and 
I was squirming in my chair just watching him because it just, I just, I, I didn't realize how deep my love for him really ran. Like it, oh, it hurt me so much to see him in pain. Oh my gosh. I'm so invested. <sighs> I'm literally probably going to watch it tonight or tomorrow, depending on how tired I am. Oh my gosh, please do. Because like, I was bawling, Frankie. Like oh I, I couldn't even look at the screen anymore. I had to pause it and I just had to like bury my head in my hands and I just cried. Oh. It's such a good film. And I'm just, I mean, luckily like things get better. I will say that, but like, that was oh, he just went through so much. He just went through so much. And it, I know I'm I'm probably getting made fun of out there for crying over celebrity, but like he just he's such a good guy, you know. Like the celebrity thing really doesn't mean anything to him. Like he would have gone out and become a wrestler even if he wasn't an actor. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's just it's just amazing. And I'm just I was it was I was so happy for him and like the success of the film and uh he just he just deserves so much. He deserves the world and uh, I just adore him so. Please go watch You Cannot Kill David Arquette. I considered covering the soundtrack, but it's a little weird because there's not really an official soundtrack. And there's, I, I'm going to have to do some digging, but eventually Aww, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about it. That's exciting. Okay, so I'm super excited to, like, I think maybe we should, like, tag it and make a special post about it. And then everyone who goes out and watch it, like, you know, reshare that, whatever, tag David. All that and let us know what you thought. Yeah. It's a great film. Aw, thanks for sharing that. I'm super excited. It's a great film. Please, please, please go watch. Um, and so uh, with that said, I think we can get into it, shall we? Yay. Cool, cool, cool. So today I'm going first, I think. Is that right? Yeah. It's your turn. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And so you saw my clue. I did. And you had a couple of guesses. I did, and they were so like ridiculously on the end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, they were ridiculous. So because her clue had like some fruit and stuff in it, um, my mind went to Godfather when they're in the scene in the like garden area. They have like a, I guess not like a not a buffet, but they have like a little fruit thing, whatever. But then I also remember. Um, in Mrs. Doubtfire, when they go to the pool with um, the mom when she's dating that guy, and they go there, and so that those were my two guesses. So it's either Godfather or Mrs. Doubtfire. It is Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Yay! You corrected the code. I'm so excited. Yes, you were right. So the film I'm talking about, and the soundtrack I'm talking about today is from Mrs. Doubtfire, released in 1993. I do have my reasons as to why I'm going with this movie today. And, oh, if you thought I was emotional before, you just wait, because <laughs> um, I've always kind of had this movie in my head for the podcast, because it does have a really lively, kind of banging-ass soundtrack, a lot of really good rock music in here. Mm -hmm. um, but I also chose this movie because, well... Like I said earlier, January is always kind of heavy uh, for me. I, I think it's it's a very trying month because there are a lot of uh, sad anniversaries. Yeah. That come with yeah. it. 
Yeah. And I, Frankie, I think you know, for sure. And so, uh, you know, I've talked about him before. My good friend, Alan, who would have been 28 on January 2nd. And then he passed away five years ago on the 16th of January. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, uh, on the 16th, uh, actually of this year, so literally just a couple weeks ago, um, on the anniversary of Alan's death, as I was remembering my friend and posting photos of him on Instagram, someone I consider a father figure passed away. Yeah. <sighs> His name was Robert Phillips, and he was an amazing, amazing man. And he was so funny, and he was so cool, and he gave great hugs just like Alan did. I met Robert, actually, because he's the father, the actual dad, of one of my best friends, Bree. And Robert and his wife have always had, like, that very homey house, if you will. Like, it's the house that, like, as soon as you walked in, you were family. And as soon as you walked in, you felt welcomed and you were fed and Robert was just joking with you immediately, whether he just met you, whether he's known you all, all his life. To be honest, like Robert and his family are a very, very big reason why I became a photographer and why I'm still a photographer today. His daughter, which is also my best friend, was my very first client ever. She's the first person I ever photographed with my professional Nikon, my very first big camera with the big lens, and I didn't know what I was doing. And she was the first person who stood in front of it and let me take her photo. It was her dancing photos, right? It was her senior photos, yeah. Okay. And that, and another thing about Robert is that he loved photography and cameras. And every time I saw him, he would ask me what I was shooting with, and then he would compare it to his camera. And he always had a better camera than I did. <laughs> how big was his uh, collection? I'm not aware. I'm not too sure how big his camera collection was, but I do know that his comic book collection is massive. And that's super epic. Like, I I remember you telling me that, and I was just, some of those are, like, literally irreplaceable. Like, just because of the condition or how old they are. Like, that's really awesome that Robert had such an amazing collection. Yeah, so so Robert was also a fellow photographer, and uh, I couldn't even hate him for having better equipment than I did. <laughs> and he just really, he was really just a photographer for fun, too. So so I think that's part of the reason why he, he loved it so much is because he just got to photograph whatever he wanted, you know? Mm-hmm, Yeah. Um, so it's a hobby. Yeah, exactly. So unfortunately, Robert did die of cancer before he passed. He did specifically ask that we not gather for a funeral. He does not want anyone to risk catching COVID. And considering how many people and how many lives he's touched, like I know that it would be a huge crowd if people even thought about trying to gather in one place for him. And so... I love that even in his final days, he was still being very considerate and selfless and, you know, keeping his family first because family was everything to them. Like his family is the most close-knit family I've ever, ever, ever known, ever. Um, so in lieu of having a funeral, he, he requested that um, if you have the means, please consider donating to the American Cancer Society. 
I have the link on my Instagram, but I'll also add it to our Soundtrack City link tree. So if you guys go to our Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City, click on the link in our bio and it'll be right on top. Um, I mean, donate what you can, if, if you can. I realize we're in a pandemic and not everyone has, you know, the means to give and that's completely understandable. But if you want, uh, you're welcome to make a donation in the memory of Robert Phillips. It's a super easy process too. And um, I think even if they can't donate, like you were saying, these immediately sharing the link would be awesome too. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Spread the word. Um, that would be much appreciated. And I know his family would love you to bits for it. Um, so, you know, just uh, keep in mind that Robert Phillips was an amazing man and his is a death that I think many, many people are feeling right now. And that being said, I chose to talk about this movie because I feel like Robin Williams kind of has a similar effect um, on people who grew up watching his films. Kind of like he was America's dad. I think he's a man whose characters and whose personality really made an impression on so many generations of people throughout his entire career, which spanned over decades. And you know, children will continue to be introduced to his films as long as there are children being born, which is amazing. That is like the most epic thing ever to think about. Yeah. That no matter what age, no matter what generation, like Rob, he will touch your life in some way or another. Yeah. And even when he transitioned into more serious roles, like he was still just as brilliant. We never felt gypped. He never phoned in a performance. Like he was always there for us. And we thought that he always would be. And I know that some people don't care about celebrities, but I think that Robin Williams' death is something that everybody felt on some level. A hundred percent agreed. I think that everybody who is living right now probably has a movie that they love that Robin Williams was in. And if I'm speaking for myself personally, I think that my very top Robin Williams film is actually One Hour Photo which is actually kind of a horror film, if any one of you guys have seen it. <laughs> I have. Love that movie. And it's been one of my favorites for years now. And now more than ever, there are there's a quote from that film that really resonates with me. Um, because again, like, I'm a photographer because of Robert, who was a photographer, and who in a way kind of reminds me of Robin Williams, because he could always make me laugh. And he was such a father figure to me. And there's a quote from one hour photo that says, and if these pictures have anything important to say to future generations, it's this. I was there. I existed. I was young. I was happy. And someone cared enough about me in this world to take my picture. Ah, it's such a good quote. Um, oh, so deep on so many levels. What a great quote, Musa. And so when Robin Williams died, I just kind of feel like the world got quieter that day and everything was a lot less funny. And that's kind of how I feel about losing Robert. And so tell the ones you love that you love them. Yeah. Tomorrow is definitely not promised. Okay, so 
before I go on, some of the sources that I used to research this movie and its soundtrack include Todd in the Shadows channel on YouTube, Glam and Gore channel on YouTube, songfacts.com, spin.com's oral history of House of Pains, jump around, complex.com, tvtropes.org, Blast from the Past channel on YouTube, Wikipedia, Ultimate Guitar, and IMDb. So this one was fun to research. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a movie, of course, that I've loved since I was a child. I remember having the VHS, and uh, it's just good times. It, I really needed a laugh, and this was it. So uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is a film that was released in 1993, and it was directed by Chris Columbus, who is also known for Home Alone 1 and 2, also Stepmom, and Rent. Yes! Screenplay for this film was written by Randy Mayhem Singer and Leslie Dixon, and this was based on the book Alias Madame Doubtfire by Anne Fine. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And apparently, of course, there are differences. And the book just kind of sounds, I don't know, the kids sound shittier, and all the characters just kind of sound a little more selfish from what I've, I've read. Oh, Oh, I'll stick to the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think I will too. In case you are unfamiliar with this film, which I'm not sure if anyone is unfamiliar with this film, but just in case, or if you haven't seen it in a while, our cast includes Robin Williams as Daniel Hillard, also Mrs. Doubtfire. We have Sally Field as Miranda Hillard, Lisa Jacob as Lydia, Matthew Lawrence as Chris, Mara Wilson in her very first film as Natalie, Pierce Brosnan as Stuart Dunmire, Harvey Firestein as Uncle Frank, and Anne Haney as Mrs. Salner. So quite a few notable actors in this film. Yes, definitely. Great, great cast. So this movie opens with Daniel, who again played by Robin Williams, and he's a voice actor, and he's currently recording for uh, an, a kind of a very Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat-esque cartoon and um as he's recording his dialogue the bird in the cartoon starts smoking a cigarette and he is not happy about that he disapproves of it completely he says it's sending the wrong message to children and that millions of children are watching this and it's just encouraging them to go light up and so the bosses are like dude just stick to the script you know if you want to be gandhi then do it on someone else's time and so robin williams quits his job as a voice actor and walks out of the studio so from there he picks up his kids and he's got three kids he's got uh lydia's the oldest chris is the middle kid and natalie's the little one and today is chris's 12th birthday uh so apparently chris didn't have a great report card but uh, since their mom isn't going to be home for another four hours, uh, Daniel decides to throw him this banging-ass house party that he somehow expects to clean up within four hours. <laughs> He's a miracle worker. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see Miranda, who is his wife and the mother of his children, and she's at work, and she's actually like an interior decorator designer. Is there a difference? And uh, so she's in this office, you know, very quaint, people in suits, and it's very quiet, and there's a receptionist. So, you know, you can tell that she's, she's kind of the, the breadwinner, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, Miranda gets told that her neighbor is on the phone and that she needs to speak with her immediately. So we cut back to the house and there is a petting zoo van outside. Animals are all over the front lawn, which I use the term lawn loosely because I live in San Francisco. So it's more like concrete and some bushes. I agreed, yes. <laughs> and blasting from the sound system from inside the house and all the way out into the street is Jump Around by House of Pain. And so Miranda comes home and she's just shocked at the state of her house right now. There are kids running around, streamers everywhere, balloons everywhere. Like, it's crazy that he had time to hang balloons and streamers too. But hey. Yeah, as a dad, he really outdid himself. Yeah, yeah. In less than four hours. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. So she comes home. She's got like a cake box and a couple of gift bags and she's just... She can't believe what's happening in her house. And so as she gets out of her car, there's a cop waiting for her. And he's like, hey, are you aware that it's illegal to have barnyard animals in a residential area? He's in San Francisco, but he's got like a New York accent for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then he's telling her, like, there's also some complaints about noise ordinance. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm going to complain myself. So she runs into the house and there are kids everywhere, like, kids are jumping up and down on her furniture dancing like it's crazy and 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 there's even a horse wandering around like a pony yeah <laughs> um and the pony gets into the cake box starts eating the cake and I'm just like Frankie what would you do if your kids pulled some shit like this in your house I don't even know because I think I would be more upset like if someone got hurt or something got broken um, but I'm not going to lie. Uh, I don't even know that many kids that they would invite over to my house. But what's funny, what always got me, like, what always weirded me out is that all these kids seem kind of young, but Chris is 12. You know what? You're absolutely right. Most of them seemed like younger than him, huh? Yeah. And, and like Lydia's the oldest, so there's no high school kids there. And then Natalie is like the little, little one and little, little ones aren't going to have a party like that. At least you would think not. <laughs> so it's it's just a really interesting party. And so finally, Miranda, like, she catches the pony eating the cake, and then she looks into the next room, and there's her husband and her son dancing on a fucking table, <laughs> and Jump Around is just blasting through these speakers. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. Spitting out lyrics. Homie, I with you. I came to get down. I came to get down. So get out your seat and jump around. Jump around. Jump around. And so then like Daniel sees that she's home and he's like, oh, sorry. We were, you know, we were going to have it cleaned up before you got here. And she starts yelling at him and she just goes in and unplugs the sound system and everything gets really quiet and the party is over it's like she literally killed the party it's it you know what's funny though like even watching it now maybe this is just me maybe i'm just too chill but the party really didn't look that bad it could have been much worse like because in the next scene they're arguing and he's like oh it's just a couple of party plates and streamers and he's he's kind of right like it's not a 
big mess. I don't know. It's again, it's not my house. Maybe I just shouldn't be talking. Um, but I, I guess like as a kid, you think it's like, oh shit, that's crazy. But as an adult, you're like, well, that can be cleaned up in like an hour. Yeah. I think honestly, as a parent, I would be more upset if you threw a party like that without me there because I would feel left out and like my kids would look at it like, oh, you're not the fun parent. You know what I mean? Right, right. And not only that, but it's also like, it's your house. You would you would want to be a host. You would want to be there if there's an event taking place. Yes, because that is very much like I am the host. I do like hosting, so I would definitely want to be there. Oh, I know you miss hosting. <laughs> oh, my God, I do. I mean, we had four people for Rocky Horror, and I probably way overdid that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, and I told you not to. <laughs> Cause I was like, it's just the four of us. My birthday already passed. Like this isn't a big deal. Just a wheel of cheese will be fine. No, she brought a car of cheese. <laughs> Look, I had to make up for twenty twenty. It sucked. <laughs> it was but it was amazing. You did a that was an amazing night. We had an amazing time. We were up to like what, four AM? Oh god, yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> that was a good time. Anyway, sorry guys. I know we keep segueing. We just haven't talked in a while. <laughs> oh, it's been it's been too long. I'm sorry. <laughs> During that crazy house party scene, we were hearing "Jump Around" by House of Pain, and I just want to give a special shout out to not that he's listening or will ever acknowledge us, but uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels, Todd in the Shadows. I love Todd in the Shadows. I discovered him last October. I've watched all of his reviews and all of his One Hit Wonderland videos, and I just, I think he's awesome. Frankie, I think you should check him out if you haven't already. He's got a cool channel. Awesome. Good shout out. Lots of music education there. And he did a One Hit Wonderland special on Jump Around by House of Pain. He saved it for last because it's probably his favorite. He knows every word. <laughs> <laughs> And so I got a I got a chunk of research from him, but then I also got uh, a bit from other sources as well. So, Jump Around by House of Pain was recorded in 1992 and released on May 5th of that same year. It is from the self-titled debut album of House of Pain, released on July 21st, 1992. House of Pain consists of DJ Lethal, Danny Boy, and Everlast. This song is considered what you would call jock jam. Oh, okay. What's interesting is that while this is the debut for House of Pain, this isn't necessarily Everlast's debut. So before Everlast became a member of House of Pain, he was a member of the Rhyme Syndicate, which is his former group. It was also Ice-T's group, and it was just a bunch of, rappers and hip-hop artists who were bound to be future superstars. I'm not going to name any of them because they did not become that. And so when Everlast was breaking out in that form, he released a song called I Got the Knack. And it was a play on words because they sampled My Sharona by The Knack. Mm-hmm. That I didn't know. And the, the pop image gimmick was not a success. Guys, if you want to, I'll go ahead and post on the blog the video of Everlast from this era. He's basically Vanilla Ice. Do it. After that did not take, 
Everlast met DJ Lethal, and then they recruited their high school friend Danny Boy, and they formed House of Pain, a group of white men from L.A. who take great pride in all things Irish and Celtics. At the time, there was Vanilla Ice, Marky Mark, and Beastie Boys, so rap, hip-hop, and white men was kind of a hit or miss at the time, I guess you could say. DJ Muggs, who is a member of Cypress Hill and who is also House of Pain's producer, came up with the beat for this song and he intended to use it on Cypress Hill's second album. This was around the time that Cypress Hill had completed their first album. They really were not feeling up to recording again so soon. So Muggs and Everlast ended up meeting through girls that they were dating and Mm -hmm. Muggs played the song for him and Everlast wrote the lyrics in Muggs' driveway. The group passed demos around with a second batch, including their logo, and the demo made it all the way to Tommy Boy Records. The song was recorded at Image Recording, and Everlast remembers them all being high and drunk in the process. I wanted to quote Todd in the Shadows when he said, Jump Around was the last good white rap song for a very long time. They kind of leaned into the Irish-American imagery, you know, the pub, the bagpipes, Celtics jerseys. For the music video Jump Around, Danny Boy recalls being in New York, and the original plan was to make a video for Come and Get Some of This. So production began on that video, which took place at an old S&M club in the Meatpacking District. And on the first day, before they were even done shooting, the label pulled the plug on the video and changed it to Jump Around. And so they made arrangements for the group to stay in New York for the week, and they waited for the St. Patrick's Day Parade for them to film the video. Oh. Filming for Jump Around took one day. Wow, that's impressive. Those of you who are familiar with the song know that the very end of it, Everlast says, this song is dedicated to Joe, the Biden, Nicola. Joe Nicolo, for those who do not know, is one of the founders of Rough House Records. House of Pain's demo was sent to them before they were signed to Tommy Boy. Right when it seemed like Rough House Records was going to sign a deal with them, Rough House abandoned House of Pain. Not long after that, Rough House Records producer Jermaine Dupree created the group Criss Cross and they released Jump in February 1992. DJ Muggs is positive that Joe Nicolo showed Dupree the House of Pain demo and ripped off their song. I absolutely believe that. Oh, yeah. Like, I had completely forgotten about Criss Cross. And then, like, uh, Todd in the Shadows had a little segment about that little scandal. And I was like, holy shit. Absolutely 100%. That's what happened. Like, they didn't even try. (laughs) No. It's a knockoff. But... If we want to talk about which one has staying power, crisscross who? Because Jump Around by House of Pain continues to get airplay to this day. After the song appeared in Mrs. Doubtfire, House of Pain started to notice younger audience members at their shows. And so House of Pain is no longer together. Everlast does do his own hip-hop-infused folk rock. Danny Boy has been doing some side projects. And DJ Lethal became a member of Limp Biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> Who have covered Jump Around and not very well, yeah. might I add. 
I hate that cover. Oh, yeah, it's awful. Um, House of Pain have reunited for shows here and there, but there are no plans to record or reform. The official music video is on YouTube, both under the House of Pain TV channel and the Tommy Boy Records channel. And combined, the video has been viewed over 66 million times within the last 10 years. Wow. And so, of course, this song has been featured in multiple bits of media, but some of the more notable ones that I thought of were Happy Gilmore, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, Black Hawk Down, and it was also sampled in a Pringles commercial, which Everlast made them pull. Oh. How come? Um, I don't either they didn't have permission or he just really didn't like that they were commercializing his song for chips. You know what? That's probably a good point. You don't want to be a sellout. I mean, yeah, unless you I mean, I guess if you talk to EMF, they did the cheese crumble thing and they loved that. That was cool. But they got to record that, you know? Right, right. Do you remember that? I do, I do. Crumbleable. I wonder <laughs> You're a mess. um i wonder like maybe maybe they're not pringles fans though like maybe it's deeper than that misa oh you know what you might be right like they're i pringles you know they might be a little overrated guys let's just say Uh, i i you know what i'm i'm unpopular opinion i'm i'm not really a fan of pringles like they're like my last choice yeah, I I never actively buy Pringles. If I eat a Pringle, it's because someone in the house bought Pringles, and I was like, "Ooh, let me taste one." I never get like a batch of Pringles. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> we are really delving in today. I'm only one song in. <laughs> <laughs> I love all our little side conversations. Yes, so do I. <laughs> okay, guys. Sorry. Back to the movie. Daniel and Miranda argue, and Miranda says she wants a divorce. So Daniel ends up crashing with his brother, who's played by Harvey Firestein, and he has a husband named Jack, and they are just amazing. They're so fun, and they're both makeup artists, so it's really cool to see their setup and stuff. And so Daniel is convinced that Miranda will come around, but she doesn't, and she ends up getting sole custody. And so... Uh, Daniel has to meet with the court liaison who's going to check on his living environment and see how he's doing. And this is the part where she's like, do you have any special skills? He's like, oh, yeah, I do voices. (laughs) He does like this just great little montage of voices. And it's like, well, I do voices. (laughs) And he does like an alien. He does Groucho Marx. He does Humphrey Bogart. He like, he's just on he's just on that's such a fun scene it is it is and so he ends up getting a job at a studio where he's boxing and shipping reels of film and then meanwhile Miranda ends up getting reintroduced to Stuart Dunmeyer who's played by Pierce Brosnan or I guess as we like to remember him James Bond (sighs) I like he was so young in this movie and I know he wasn't young but you know what I mean Yes, I know what you mean. And that man is aging so well. Mm. How old is he now? I don't know. Let's look it up. Let's segue again, shall we? Here's Brosnan age. He's got to be like 67. Oh, gosh. I thought he was older than that. How old was he in this film then? 1992? Yeah. 
um, oh, is that was that 30 years ago now? So he was 37. Wow. For some reason, I thought he was older in this film, but that makes sense. That makes sense. My personal opinion, he is the most handsome James Bond ever. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I know a lot of people have a thing for Sean Connery and Roger Moore and all those other guys. Everybody loses their shit over Daniel Craig. I don't see it. It's fine. I love Pierce Brosnan all the way. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like any of them, but if I had to rate them, I think that he's definitely, I'm I'm able to look at him longer than the others. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. So Miranda gets reintroduced to him. It turns out they were like old flames in college. And so he has specifically asked for her to redesign an estate that he bought that he's going to turn into a, a bed and breakfast. And so Daniel finds out that Miranda's putting in an ad for a housekeeper. So he sabotages her ad and he changes the phone number so that everybody who calls will get it wrong. And so he ends up calling her multiple times as different people, like trying to get the job. But he's purposely blowing these phone calls so that she doesn't like so that he can lure her in with the perfect person yes and so finally he calls Miranda as Mrs. Doubtfire he makes up the name on a whim and he charms himself right into a job interview with her and so of course he has to show up as an old woman so he goes to his brother so that he's like can you make me a woman (laughs) and his brother is so happy to do this for him And so then we get this great little montage of uh, his brother and his husband trying these different prosthetic looks and makeup looks, which I got to admit, when I was a kid and to this day, I always wondered why this was necessary because he already knew what voice he wanted to use. So why didn't they just match the person to the voice? Um, I mean, I get what you mean, but at the same time, have you ever like heard someone's voice and then you see them and you're like, oh, that doesn't match or that's not what I was expecting? I mean, yeah, you're right. But like with some of these character designs that they're doing with him, like they turn him into a Cuban woman. Yeah. Which the accent is, no. And then they make him look like Barbara Streisand, who does like... I mean, <laughs> I get what you mean. Like, it's just completely different. Like, completely, it's not even like within the same realm. Like, I just kind of thought, like, isn't this kind of a waste of time and and resources? Because because he, he knows all that makeup. He knows what he's supposed to sound like. So I don't know. I just that was always a thing with me. But don't get me wrong. This whole entire scene with Fi- Harvey Firestein is fucking fantastic, and I love it to bits. It's probably one of the best scenes in the entire film. It just always made me wonder a little. They finally decide, like, okay, we're going to have to do the whole face because he looks too much like himself. And with this, we get another nice little montage, and it is set to Luck Be a Lady by Frank Sinatra. Luck be a lady tonight. So we see them start to mix the plaster and then there's a mold of his face being removed. And um, so he was he was underneath all these layers of plaster. So when they take it off of his face, he starts to like finally like breathe better. And he's like stretching his face and his jawline because he's been stuck that way for who knows how long. And so we see them remove the mold of his face and they're like putting clay on it and 
they're painting it and then they open this drawer it's really cool like they have all these eyeballs and teeth and you know all these little fun makeup things oh doesn't it make you miss theater it really does (laughs) the theater was fun um and so we see um really extreme close-ups of daniel as he puts in the fake teeth and he puts on the old lady glasses but like those blue eyes are just like so robin so you know it's him and then we see him putting on these really thick pantyhose because he doesn't intend to wax he said so (laughs) he straight up said he's not gonna wax so (laughs) i love it and so he makes a few adjustments to his outfit puts on the skirt puts on the shoes and we don't see him right away we don't get the reveal yet. It's a very uh, Ricky Lake type thing where they go to commercial first. But <laughs> I love that throwback. <laughs> Ricky was my girl. Ricky's still oh, my I girl. Love her. And so then finally, like, they're done with the look. They're admiring him. And his back is to the camera. And he's like, are we close? And Harvey Firestein's like, any closer and you'd be mom and they just <laughs> high five and they are so happy with this this is the final product this is mrs doubtfire Luck be a lady good scene <laughs> great scene So the song that played during that amazing little montage where we got to see all the cool makeup effects and the process was Luck Be a Lady by Frank Sinatra. The song is a work by Frank Loser and was written in 1950 for the musical Guys and Dolls. Confession, guys, I have to admit, I'm going to say this. I don't think I've ever said this before. Guys and Dolls is my absolute number one favorite musical of all time. This I didn't know. (laughs) I love it. It's the very first musical I ever saw in a live theater. It was a theater in the round, actually. Ooh. And I loved it. The moment that um, Rusty Charlie made eye contact with me, I fell in love with just everything. 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 I love that show. So the very first stage production of Guys and Dolls was on October 14th, 1950, and it premiered on Broadway a month and a half later. Robert Alda starred in the role as Sky Masterson, a gambler slash womanizer and the singer of this particular tune. He won the Tony Award in 1951 for Best Actor in a Musical because of this role. He made many various films throughout his career, but he found most of his success on stage. Many actors have gone on to play the role of Sky on stage and have therefore sung this song, including Jerry Orbuck, Ray Shaw, Ian Charlson, Peter Gallagher, Ewan McGregor, Craig Bierko, just to name a few, (laughs) which I think is just amazing, and I would have died to see any of them do that. Oh, God, yes, some great names in there. I know, I know. Uh, When the musical was adapted into a film, this, uh, again, because Guys and Dolls is my favorite. I kind of already knew this. So I I just delved in a little further. Um, There was some drama about the movie, which makes me sad because it's one of my favorite musicals and movies. But even The Wizard of Oz had issues and everybody loves that film too. So Yeah, people died. When the musical for Guys and Dolls was adapted into a film, Frank Sinatra yearned to play the part of Sky Masterson. But if you are familiar with the film, you know 
but he did not get the part. And you know that it was instead given to perhaps one of the greatest actors who have ever lived, Marlon Brando. I love Frank, but I love Marlon Brando. And this is one of my favorite roles of his. I am the opposite. I love Marlon Brando, but my heart is with Frank. And, oh, I'll get into it. So, um, Sinatra immediately resented Brando for getting the role because Marlon Brando can't sing. And everybody knew he couldn't sing. Marlon Brando admitted he couldn't sing, but he still ended up with that starring role. So there was a lot of resentment there, which I think is rightfully so. And so the two of them ended up having a really strained working relationship during the filming. And Marlon Brando even approached Frank for help on some of the songs, but Frank refused to help him. Which I think is understandable. Not only that, but I'm not trying to justify anything here, but everybody knows Frank Sinatra was kind of a dick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they didn't know that much back then. It's something like that, I guess. But then I know Marlon Brando also kind of had a had an ego. Back then, I think it was easy for them to be full of themselves, you know? Yeah, I, I exactly. I was going to say, Marlon was also kind of an asshole, though. Yeah. He had a reputation. Yeah, I think Marlon's bad reputation kind of came further toward, like, the, the later years of his career, just because of, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, we don't have to get into this right now, but Marlon Brando actually spent a lot of time in the recording studio trying to get the songs down. But in the end, they really couldn't get one good take. So what they ended up doing was they made a Frankenstein track of his vocals. So they had to piece it together from the good parts of all the various recordings that he did. And even during filming, Marlon Brando admitted that he struggled to keep up lip syncing because of how they patched the songs together. Oh, that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra went on in multiple interviews and publications about how he wanted to play Sky and how Marlon was all wrong for Sky, and even Marlon Brando knew that he was not right for that part. Uh, but despite what happened on the film, Frank Sinatra still adored the music, the part, the song, and so Luck Be a Lady did go on to become part of his set when he would perform live. And the song first appeared on Frank Sinatra's albums in 1965. He released My Kind of Broadway and A Man and His Music. Both albums featured the cover of this song. And yeah, he, and then, of course, he's got multiple recordings of it, like from his live albums. So if you type in Luck Be a Lady Frank Sinatra, you're going to get quite a few renditions. Um, I won't post them all on the blog because it's, it's all Frank. It's all good. But uh, I will post uh, maybe a live performance just to so you can kind of see just how seamless, like how amazing Frank is live compared to his audio, which is I think he's one of the few artists who sounds exactly like he does when he's coming from your speakers. Mm-hmm. That's a huge, huge talent. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And of course, because this song has been around forever. Uh, multiple people have covered it, including, and I'm just naming a few, Barbara Streisand, Seal, Barry Manilow, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, 
uh, multiple orchestras, actually. I'll, I'll post a few. Uh, it's quite a bit of a variety. Uh, multiple artists and school bands, including the University of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Remember they did Time Warp? I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, so they also did Luck Be a Lady. <laughs> Good choices. Good things. All right, so Mrs. Doubtfire ends up getting the job. At first, Lydia doesn't like her, but the other kids do. And even Miranda finds something familiar about her, but she can't place it. So whatever. It's all good. She goes along with it anyway, which I'm like, if your husband showed up at your house dressed as a woman, don't you think he would? I mean, it is a convincing disguise. It is? I don't know. I don't know. I I always question that. Like, how did she not know? Right. And my, I always wondered, like, what was his end game? How long did he intend to? Yeah, like, did he think he was going to woo her as Mrs. Doubtfire? <laughs> That's another thing, too. Like, isn't he kind of also the antagonist because he doesn't want her to be, ha- like, he's, he's, he, he's aiming for a fairly unrealistic solution, which is to get back together. Yes. So there's a lot we we got to break this movie down in another episode. So we're going to have to come back like to a Mrs. Doubtfire like theory breakdown episode. I agree. I agree. So, on her very first day, the kids kind of refuse to do what she says. So she ends up punishing them by making them clean. And it's a very short scene where they're cleaning various parts of the house and while they're cleaning, we hear Call It Stormy Monday by BB King. Again, it's a very short clip, uh, a very tiny little pan from the living room where we see the kids kind of washing the door frames and Natalie's like waxing candlesticks and stuff like that and Lydia's vacuuming. Like the lyrics don't even come in. <laughs> like that's how little the song plays. But it's such a fantastic little bluesy guitar that comes in and so I just wanted to talk about this song. Um, the song, Call It Stormy Monday by B.B. King, was originally written and recorded by a man named Aaron Tebow Walker, better known to the world as T-Bone Walker. And the original name of this song is Call It Stormy Monday, parentheses, but Tuesday is just as bad, end parentheses. I love titles like that. Am I the only one? (laughs) No, no, I'm totally into the Fallout Boy look. I love it. Yes! (laughs) Thanks for the... So, T-Bone actually is known for lending a sound to music that was revolutionary at the time, as he is one of the earliest musicians to incorporate electric guitar in his work. Wow. He started off performing in clubs in Los Angeles, eased his way into the jazz and blues scene. At first, he joined in with other already established groups, but by 1940, he was playing guitar with his own combination of musicians. In 1942, T-Bone recorded his first album, and this song, Call It Stormy Monday, But Tuesday is Just as Bad, would be released as a single in November of 1947. This was the B-side. Of course. The A side to this was I Know Your Wig Has Gone. Which I've never heard of. I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. T Bone Walker went on to re record this song multiple times for different studios and live performance recordings as his career continued. 
1983, this song was inducted into the Blues Foundation Blues Hall of Fame. In 1991, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame named the song one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And this song does have a spot in the Congress's National Recording Registry. As it should. Yes, absolutely. In the Encyclopedia of the Blues, this song has an entry, of course, and the entry begs the question, what blues man does not have his own version? So with that being said, some of the people who have covered this song and have, you know, they've made it their own. So some of the titles vary. Like I said, B.B. King's version is called Call It Stormy Monday. But if you check out some of these other musicians that I'm about to name, the title does vary. But that intro is unmistakable. So you'll know what what version it is. So covers include B.B. King, of course. B.B. King's is the version that is featured in this film. Other artists who have covered it include Albert King with Stevie Ray Vaughan, Bobby Blue Bland, the Almond Brothers Band, mm-hmm. Lou Rawls, uh, Freddie King, Cream, Van Morrison, the Jackson Five, as well as Nancy Wilson and Ava Cassidy. So I will post as many covers as I can find on the blog. I love songs like this with an array of musicians like that because no two of them sound the same. Yes, I can't wait to see these up there. Yes, it's going to be good. So also on the same day, this is also Miss Doubtfire's first day on the job. And so she ends up like fucking up dinner and she ends up boiling her shit. And it's it's crazy to me that she scree- she's on fire in the kitchen and the kids don't hear her. <laughs> Right. Like tune her out. <laughs> right. Apparently, like she told them to go do their homework, and they were just zoned in on their homework. So yes. it's all good. And so she ends up ordering takeout from really fancy Italian place. Damn, I've always thought this food looks fucking amazing when she's plating it. Right. Yes. Mm. I know it's like noodles and shrimp with a cream sauce, and like it looks like little carrots and like a fruit salad. Like, like, no, it's like a salad garnished with, like, fruit and berries. Yeah. So after Mrs. Doubtfire presents them with this amazing dinner that she can, I guess she's playing off as though she made it herself, mm-hmm. um, she finally wins over the heart of Lydia because she sees how happy this makes Miranda. Miranda comes home after a long day of work, and she sees this amazing spread on the dinner table with the candles lit, and Mrs. Doubtfire really went all out to make this a special family dinner look, and... It's just, everyone just looks happy. And this is the first time that the family is smiling since, you know, all movie. And so Lydia ends up apologizing to Mrs. Doubtfire. And then everyone is getting along just fine. So then we go into another montage. And this one is set to Dude Looks Like a Lady by Mm -hmm. Aerosmith. So we get this great montage of Mrs. Doubtfire as she begins to bond with the family. So we see her playing soccer with Chris and then we see them like riding bikes along the bridge and of course she's also doing some house cleaning too so she's dancing while she's vacuuming Mm. and then of course we do see Daniel's persona come back as well because during the montage we see him 
sitting on his couch. He's still dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire, but he's himself from the neck up. And he's watching cooking shows. So he's learning how to cook. And so he ends up making this amazing looking lobster when he's at the house as Mrs. Doubtfire. And and then we see him reading books to Natalie, which is something that she loved her dad doing. And we see him like cleaning the house and he's playing the broom like it's a guitar. And it's just, he's just being crazy. And it's funny because it's Robin Williams and it's amazing. It's a super cute scene. It also shows like how much he loves his kids and just wants to be there with them and doing all those things that he misses. Yes, yes, exactly. Like this, these are the lengths that he was going to. And you can tell like he's taking full advantage of it. Like he's treating them as though he really is dad. Like he's there as dad. And he's just soaking up all those, all that time that he has with them because I wouldn't know from personal experience, but I know Frankie, seeing your updates, the kids grow up fast. Oh my God, yes. My oldest will be in high school next year and I am, I'm excited, but I'm not because, you know, my mind just goes to like college and like him moving and, you know, I want that. I want him to be successful and independent, but I'm going to miss him. (laughs) Of course, of course. He's your firstborn. He's your baby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh oh, we're getting emotional again. I am. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I triggered you. <laughs> I'm gonna be crying a lot over the next four years, so forgive me now. Um, well, there. Yeah, there is that. There is that. But you know, it's gonna be a good thing because once once you're done, kind of like setting him up for college and everything, you at least you know you're sending a good human being out into the world. Like that's all you. That's a product of you. Uh, that is that is what our my goal was. I just wanted to make my kids independent, successful, functional, good humans. Yeah, yeah, that's all that matters. Yeah. So, who who care about the environment? By the way, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Gotta have that. Gotta have that. Um, so, <laughs> uh, as the montage goes on, you know, we just kind of see, um, yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire is just getting into it. She's 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 getting into this groove of her new job, and she's spending time with the kids, which is really what she and Daniel want. Um, and so, what's really cool about the end of this montage? Uh, this is probably my favorite part of the montage. We get a shot of San Francisco, and we see the Transamerica Pyramid from Zodiac. Yes, I forget about that. Yeah, little shout out. And this is my favorite part because uh, a guy tries to steal Mrs. Doubtfire's purse. Oh, <laughs> and like he doesn't expect the old lady to fight back, but it's Daniel, of course, who is a very abled man. Right. Yes. <laughs> So the guy tries to grab her purse and Daniel like grabs this guy by the shirt and shakes him and he's like, back off, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy straight up like backs the fuck, like he backs up and he runs away. He's so freaked out. He was not expecting that at all. It's such a funny funny scene like ever since I was a kid I love that scene it's just it's such a quick moment but it's great it's super funny throughout that whole little montage where we saw Mrs. Doubtfire kind of you know um establishing herself and uh becoming part of the family we were hearing dude parentheses looks like a lady and parentheses (laughs) by Aerosmith this is a song that was recorded in 1987 and released on September 22nd of 1987. 
This is featured on their album, Permanent Vacation. At the time of the song's recording, and kind of to this day, if they are on speaking terms again, Aerosmith consisted of Joey Kramer on the drums, Brad Whitford on rhythm lead guitar, Tom Hamilton on bass, Steven Tyler on lead vocal, and Joe Perry on lead and rhythm guitar. In early versions of this song, the hook was actually cruising for a lady oh yeah but songwriter desmond child who was helping steven tyler and joe perry pen the song said no he said i don't think van halen would put that on the b-side of their worst record the band was not used to working with outside writers but because desmond child's work brought such great success to bon jovi previously with songs like you give love a bad name and living on a prayer they agreed to work with him to please their executives. Joe Perry, when creating the guitar riff, was inspired by ACDC. And the inspiration for this song, <laughs> giggle, uh, I think we all know the story behind this song. But in case those of you who haven't heard or maybe thought it was an urban legend, I just want to confirm that something you may have heard is probably 100% true. Because the inspiration for this song came from Motley Crue. When Aerosmith met up with the band, Steven Tyler mistook Vince Neil for a woman because of his giant blonde rock and roll hair. <laughs> Even in Nikki Six's autobiography, he recalls Vince Neil as being the inspiration for the song. Vince Neil himself knows that this song is about him, and he thinks it's hilarious. What a good sport. I know, right? So while writing the song, Joe Perry explicitly stated that he did not want to offend or insult the gay community. Desmond, a gay man himself, said that he did not feel insulted and he helped write the song. Desmond went on in interviews pointing out how the person singing the song does not freak out or run away when they realize that the girl is a guy. Instead, the person stays and indulges and he actually kind of likes it. Mm. So there is some controversy uh, that the song created about, like, I guess, anti-trans or anti, I don't know, people just got the wrong message. Um, I guess I can kind of see where and why particular communities would be offended, but I've never seen this song as insulting anyone, um, and I, I just always kind of thought it was meant to be kind of funny and lighthearted and like you know happy accident kind of song yeah agreed I mean um I can definitely see like where people might take it the wrong way but um like you just don't get that that tone from the song at all yes exactly like like when Aerosmith is singing this I don't get a malicious intent anywhere in this context yeah, exactly so, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's there's plenty of anti-trans and lots of gay hate out there, but I don't think this is one of those places. I just think people want something to be mad at, honestly. Yeah, or they like to, like, interpret things the wrong way. I hate when people are like, oh, well, he meant it as this. Like, no, you're not the writer. You don't get to say what someone meant as. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I mean, they made it very clear, like I said, from the start that they did not want to offend anyone. 
And they went on to clarify exactly what the song is about. And if you read the lyrics carefully, like there's there's really nothing derogatory in there. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, maybe if you're not a fan of the song because it's not a great song, then that's on you. But I don't think that there's any hate coming from this tune. Yeah, agreed. This track is considered Aerosmith's comeback after years of being plagued by drug addiction and underperforming albums. Only a year prior had they reemerged with the crossover song Walk This Way that they did with Run DMC, which we all remember. Yes. Randy Mayhem Singer, who wrote the screenplay for Mrs. Doubtfire, credits this song as being a direct influence to write the script. She said it was one of the most important songs ever. And without it, there would be no Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, it's a kind, of a, kind of an important song, I guess, if you want to talk as far as in, in the terms of pop culture, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little. So, guys, um, that actually does it for the music portion of this film. Those are the four songs that I chose. But, um, of course, we know how Mrs. Doubtfire goes. And whenever someone pretends to be someone else, they do get figured out, which is exactly what happens. And hilarity ensues in the process. <laughs> yes. I do have to say, like, of course, the, the ending everything turns out okay like they don't necessarily get back together of course but there is a happy ending considering because daniel does get partial custody of the kids he is able to pick them up after school every day and spend time with them so it's not just once a week anymore and miranda has found a way to forgive him um and he does end up becoming the star of his own children's show, which is really cool to see come full circle because in the beginning we saw him quit a kid's show because he didn't agree with their messages. Yeah, and then he's kind of getting to create his own messages, the things that he thinks are important in the new show, or that's how it comes off as. Exactly, and so he just happens to be starring in this show as Mrs. Doubtfire, um, which, again, when I was a kid, and, and even to this day, I've always wondered, what is his name in the opening credits of the show? Because when I would watch shows as a kid, I would learn actor names by trying to match them to who they played. Like some shows like Full House showed you the actor with their name so you knew who was who. But some shows just like let the credits roll and show you clips of the shows, right? Yeah, you're right. I feel like that's almost kind of very 90s too for them to have the character like you have the song play and they pose next to their yes. Yeah, they turn around and they give you like yeah. the toothpaste smile. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. you caught me drinking. Yeah, or like, I'm answering the phone, ha ha ha, or some shit like that. I'm opening the fridge. Yes, yes. And so I've always imagined that Mrs. Doubtfire had that kind of opening credits where the names and the actor appear at the bottom of the screen. And I'm like, aren't kids going to pick up on the fact that the top billed actor is Daniel Hillard? Or does he go by Euphigenia Doubtfire as though she's real? Are the parents in the 90s cool with their kids watching the show where the guy... Like, the 90s, it was still very... I feel like a lot of things were still taboo in the 90s. Yeah. So I'm like, the parents have to know that it's a guy? Or 
then they're and the show is a success so they're cool with it like it's just a very interesting it's a very mrs doubtfire revolutionized stuff in the 90s guys that's what we're taking away from this definitely he opened the door for drag queens trans rights you know all of it but really though like i want to know what his name was in the credits that's all i want to know i bet i wonder if you can find it somewhere i i did you look you looked no i i didn't look i did watch deleted scenes though i watched plenty of deleted scenes which um i think some of them i think most of them were necessarily taken out i would say um it just seemed the movie's already two hours long. Yeah. So I think that I think that everything that was removed was, you know, rightfully so. It works. It's, okay, good. I'm glad that you feel that way. I was just about to ask, like, is there anything that you think could have been in there? Um, no, not necessarily. Not nothing that I would change. But there was an interesting scene that I hadn't seen before, where. After her birthday dinner at the restaurant, everything goes wrong and they find out that it's Daniel. Um, There's a scene where he comes to the house and he's still dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire and him and Miranda argue and the kids hear it. Oh. Yeah. I'll post it on the blog. It was an interesting scene. And I'm not necessarily saying that I would put that back in, but it was was interesting to watch. Because you never really see them lash out at each other after that dinner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, any Hooters, that does conclude uh, my movie. I do have a few fun facts, if I may. Of course. One thing that I have to point out, and I am going to post on the blog, it's probably one of my favorite things about this movie, and it's actually not even really related to the movie. Someone recut Mrs. Doubtfire and turned it into a, a horror movie trailer, and it's on YouTube. And every now and then I go back and watch it because I wish it was real, and it would just be so perfect as a scary movie. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm dying to see this. Yes, I'm definitely going to post it. I'll go ahead and send it to you tonight after we hang up, but I'm going to post it on the blog because I love it and I think it's awesome. Um, and if, 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 I'm not saying I would ever, ever, ever want a remake of Mrs. Doubtfire because I'm not really sure how some of these devices would translate into this millennium, but if they were to remake it, I would be cool with a horror spin being put on it. That's all I'm saying. I I am intrigued. Yes, yes, yes. So um, I do want to point out um, this movie won the Oscar in 1994 for Best Makeup. Yay! Deservedly so. And I wanted to just highlight some of the makeup artists that worked on this film because I don't feel like a lot of them get much recognition. Like we love Robin Williams and Sally Field and everything, but like Robin Williams wouldn't look as great as he did without the makeup crew. So I just have to... I wanted to name a few of them, and I also wanted to name some of the stuff that they went on to do, because some of them have had some amazing careers, and I think that they deserve some recognition. Awesome. So, uh, some of the makeup artists for Mrs. Doubtfire included Roland Blancaflor, who also worked on Alien 3, Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Mask, The Ring, Hellboy, X-Men First Class, The Avengers, Shrek the Musical, and Clown. We have Greg Canham who worked on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, four episodes of Tales from the Crypt, The Exorcist Part 3, Captain America, Hook, The Mask, Titanic, and Michael Jackson's Thriller. What an amazing thing. Already these people have been in some awesome stuff. Freaking cool. Of course, I'm only naming just a few notable titles, guys. They've, of course, had their hands on multiple projects. 
but these are this just give you an idea for like the people who did Mrs. Doubtfire also did these and it's just incredible the work that they've done. We have Mitch Devane who also worked on The Exorcist Part 3, Captain America, White Chicks, the Friday the 13th remake and Men in Black 3. Stefan Dupoy who worked on RoboCop, The Fly 2, The Man Without a Face, Jason X, 300, Contagion, Ant-Man and Venom. We have John Logan who worked on Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Howard the Duck, Michael Jackson's Captain EO, Hoffa, and Forrest Gump. We have V. Neal, who was one of the primary makeup artists, and she's one of the three who accepted the award uh, at the Oscars. She has also worked on Tourist Trap, 9 to 5, The Lost Boys, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Constantine, and A Star is Born. Wow. Stephen Prouty also worked on Hook, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Planet of the Apes from 2001, The Cat in the Hat, Click, Hairspray, Thor, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Creed Part 2. Todd Tucker worked on The Man Without a Face, four episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Hannibal, A Beautiful Mind, Van Helsing, Scary Movie 4, 14 episodes of Hannah Montana, and Ouija Origins of Evil. Now, I didn't name every makeup artist, but those are some of the ones that I wanted to point out because that's just awesome. I mean, I think everyone can agree that the makeup for Mrs. Doubtfire was fucking amazing. Like, you really start to forget that it's Robin Williams. You kind of forget that she's not a woman. Um, Like, as I watch this film, she really does look like another actor. You're absolutely right, and I think you just said such a good job of like embodying what this older woman would be like from mannerisms to like you know their beliefs and thought processes because they would have kind of like that old school thinking and I can't imagine this being played by anybody else oh I know and while we're on that subject can I just say one person who was considered before Robin Williams got the part oh my god please I'm dying to know who was this is going to make you shit but like I, when I heard this, I was like, there's no fucking way, but this is a hundred percent true. Before Robin Williams was casted, this movie was meant to be a film companion to the show Home Improvement. What? This film was originally pegged to be a film where Tim and Jill, the parents from Home Improvement, get a divorce. And Tim wants to be with the kids so bad that he dresses as a woman to see them. No. I shit you not. And when they presented this idea to Tim Allen and Patricia Richardson from Home Improvement, they did not like this idea. They thought this was not this was not gonna work. They didn't like it at all. Once the kind of the extension idea was scrapped and they decided to separate it from Home Improvement completely. They not only offered Tim Allen the role of Daniel slash Mrs. Doubtfire, they also offered him the role of Stuart, the Pierce Brosnan character. What? Because the Pierce Brosnan character was originally written to be like an asshole who was like this rich guy who just wanted Miranda for himself and he was going to send the kids to boarding school. But when they casted Pierce Brosnan, they couldn't make him bad. So they made him just utterly meltingly charming so that you couldn't hate him at all. Like, he's not a bad guy, you know? 
Yeah, no, he's not a bad guy at all. But both of those roles were originally considered to be given to Tim Allen. I I, I don't even know how to process my emotions. <laughs> right? Um, I I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love Tim Allen, but I just, I can't see it. And my question is like, if they had gone, if in some alternate universe and some alternate different timeline where they did go ahead and make this movie, what happened to the show? Because the show ran for like eight years and they stayed together for eight years. So like, how would the show have, con- like, would the movie not be canon and the show ignores the movie? Like, I didn't understand how that was going to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Great question. Yeah. So I'm glad that we don't know the answers to those questions because I think that this movie ended up just the way it was supposed to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The universe works again. Indeed, indeed. So, a couple other fun facts. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire's voice, when Robin Williams was first developing it, it started off as a loud, screechy, unbearable voice, kind of like Julia Child. And then he toned it down to Margaret Thatcher on steroids. These are his words, not mine. And uh-huh. um, then he added a little bit of Bill Forsyth. And he also added a touch of this costume designer that he knew named Merritt, who was this really sweet woman, very gentle, soft-spoken. He combined all those elements, and he came up with the voice for Mrs. Doubtfire. Like I said earlier, this was Mara Wilson's first film. Because there was so much ad-libbing and multiple takes and lots of laughter, she was under the impression that every movie set would be exactly like this. Ooh, yeah, no. (laughs) The scene where Mrs. Doubtfire hits Pierce Brosnan on the back of the head with a lime, that only took two takes. The first take, it went straight past his ear. The second take hit him square in the back of the head. Pierce Brosnan admits that this is his favorite scene in the whole film, and he sends that gift to his friends all the time. Oh, that is hilarious. I love it. I love him. He's just so... mm. He's so young. Pierce Brosnan remembers the first time he met Robin Williams, who was in makeup when he first met him. Uh, He says that he walked in and Robin was completely himself from the neck down. And from the neck up, he was Mrs. Doubtfire and he spoke as her too. Of course he did. Always in character. Mm -hmm. Because Robin Williams would be in makeup from the early hours of the morning, Pierce Brosnan actually never really saw him as Robin only as Mrs. Doubtfire, and he interacted with him as Mrs. Doubtfire. So it wasn't until the last day of Pierce Brosnan filming that Robin Williams, as himself, knocked on Pierce's trailer door and introduced himself as Robin. What a stand-up guy. (laughs) The makeup consists of eight pieces of foam latex, and they are pieced together on Robin Williams' face. Then it's painted, and then layers of grease paint are applied for the flesh tones. On a good day, it took three to three and a half hours. On a bad day, it took four to four and a half hours. The filmmakers always aimed to shoot with Robin for at least 10 hours a day, and at the end of shooting each day, removing the makeup took an hour. I was just going to say, that's actually really quick in terms of like prosthetics and the makeup and the amount of like steps that it takes because I know thinking of other movies where there's like full makeup and things like that it can take six eight hours just in makeup alone oh yeah oh yeah the two movies that I immediately think of when I think of like long makeup process I think of Rebecca Romaine in Mm X-Men and Mm -hmm. I think of Tim Curry in Legend 
That is so funny. So I immediately think of, oh my gosh, I'm blanking out. What's his name from Hellboy? Oh, and then, um, Ron Perlman. Uh, yes, thank you. And then um, Jim Carrey from The Grinch. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And, and like you heard earlier, some of the makeup artists here went on to work on The Grinch. So Exactly. Oh, it's just crazy to me. It's, it must be so enduring just on everyone, you know, everyone on the project. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So another YouTube channel that I want to shout out because she kind of helped me with my research is the Glam and Gore channel on YouTube. It's a girl named Mikey. She's a special effects makeup artist, and she does a lot of special effects makeup on her channel. But then she also, like in this case, she'll watch a movie that contains special effects makeup and she'll review it. So she'll kind of talk about the process and what you're seeing and explain a bit more. So she actually did a review on Mrs. Doubtfire and she actually agrees with me. She straight up said that Robin Williams is kind of like America's dad. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. And so she goes through that scene where they're making his life cast. And that is kind of how they make his mask is they make a life cast of his face. And then that's how they design the mask in real life as well. Uh, so it turns out Mrs. Doubtfire is modeled after a photo of a woman that they found from the 1940s. And so what they did is they created this quote unquote negative mold of his face. And then mm -hmm. you make the concave version of the face, you fill it with the stone like material, and then you have the life cast. And Mikey, who is the, the girl with the channel, Glam and Gore, she actually updates her own life cast face every few years uh so I thought that was pretty cool oh I guess because you go through changes yeah yeah so she just kind of keeps it's kind of like keeping a record or I guess like the equivalent of photographs yeah yeah so she goes through like the film and so there are parts where we see them sculpting onto the life cast with clay she does say that there are many steps that they don't show us which I'm sure there are plenty of steps that you know the movie doesn't show for the sake of you know they hollywooded the makeup process of course. In the movie, she points out that it's made to look like one piece of the mask. But of course, like I said, it is actually eight separate pieces. So it wouldn't be as easy for him to switch back and forth like we see him do. But again, movie magic. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Lawrence, who plays Chris, he remembers he was about 11 years old at the time. And, you know, that's a very impressionable age for a boy. This is when you're kind of seeking out your role models, right? Like you're starting to look up to certain men in your life and in media. You're starting to figure out who you are and who you want to be like, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Matthew Lawrence remembers the first time that he met Pierce Brosnan. He said he was in the makeup trailer and Pierce Brosnan walked in and Matthew said that he watched all the women in the trailer immediately straighten their posture when Pierce Brosnan was in the room. <laughs> really and Matthew Lawrence was like I want to be like this guy <laughs> that's so funny I just think it's precious and then I have one last final fact it's not very fun but I thought it was like a nice little clincher to end everything with so Lisa Jacob who plays Lydia the oldest daughter she was in ninth grade at the time of filming she was attending a Canadian high school through mail and so one day, the school sent her a letter saying that this process was too disruptive and that she was no longer welcome in the school. What the hell? So Robin Williams knew how upset she was about this. And he asked her for the school's address. And he personally wrote a letter to her principal 
asking them to understand her situation and to reconsider. The school did not readmit Lisa, but they did frame the letter from Robin Williams and it hangs in the principal's office. Oh, you don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. Isn't that shitty? That's so shitty. I was going to say, I would have totally framed that. <laughs> it reminds me of the Modern Family episode where Jay gets a restraining order from Terry Bradshaw and he's like, but look, he had to sign it. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Shit like that. So, any Hooters, guys, that does conclude my movie, Mrs. Doubtfire from 1993. It's a fantastic little fun family comedy and uh, with great music and great actors and it's a good time. I hope you enjoyed this nice little segment about a 1990s throwback. Yes, you did great. Yay, fun. And now it's Frankie's turn. Yay, great job, Misa. I love your movie. And now I'm definitely going to have to go rewatch it. Um, it's so funny. I feel like we always choose kind of like the same style-ish movies, at least in the same kind of genre typically. Um, and so I am covering a comedy as well. And I know you know my movie. <laughs> Yes, so when I saw your clue, there were three movies that immediately came to mind. And I don't, I can't really say what, because it, it, it looks like it's very obviously a slumber party. Right. And it's, it's, it's girls, and it's very much a girl's <laughs> bedroom and girl legs. And there's, um, there's some braids, like a pony, like, uh, like pigtail braid kind of looking thing. Uh-huh. And so it, it reminded me of Greece, but I knew I was like, it's not, it's not Greece for sure, and then it's definitely not going to be like the remake of Greece, right? <laughs> um, so the first movie that I thought of was Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is hilarious, of course. Love that movie. So I immediately rewatched Drop Dead Gorgeous because I was like, oh, I I don't remember this particular scene. I was like. I don't remember there being a scene where Kirsten Dunst has the girls over for a sleepover, but like, let me watch it just in case, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And then my second choice was Sugar and Spice. And you are absolutely correct. Yay! <laughs> so I am going to be covering Sugar and Spice, the 2001 American black comedy film that was directed by Francine McDonald. I want to say it's McDougal. I've heard it McDougal and McDougal. Um, She is Australian, so, you know, it's pronounced a little bit differently when they say it. Uh, So forgive me. But this was actually her first feature film that she directed. um, And kind of her only, like, not Disney film that I found um, that she directed. Uh, Ever since these, she's kind of gone on to, like, short films and, like, TV stuff. Like, this was pretty much her only real feature film that she did minus some smaller stuff what what disney movies did she make um she did the disney channel original movies go figure and cowbells i've only seen cowbells which has those like um well what are those sisters it's like their last name's milchaka or something allison the milchaka sisters i don't know if you remember them oh man i I didn't watch Disney Channel very much, honestly. Got you. Um, they're like these, um, that movie in particular was about these like super, kind of like Paris Hilton-esque sisters. 
and they lose all their money and they have to go work in like a, a dairy farm. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know, super realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, this was her, um, debut film and honestly it didn't do super well like when you look at the budget but it is one of those movies that kind of has like that cult classic following if you will I would put this in the same like category as Jawbreaker absolutely yeah absolutely it's definitely not like um it's it's a b-side movie you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I'm just gonna call it what it is um it is not for everyone it has mixed reviews some people say it's like super smart super funny like it's kind of making fun of like those teen movies um, because that was kind of that era of teen movies. It did not do super well in the theaters. The overall budget was like 27 million and it grossed about 16.9 million worldwide. So it isn't considered a successful movie, but it's definitely one that I remember watching when it first came out and thinking that it was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, I remember when... This is another one that my sister watched that I kind of watched alongside her. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like (laughs) there are such memorable parts and there are so many like memorable quotes. Like I think my favorite is when James Marsden is working with the fried chicken place. He's like, don't worry, there are no fried rats in here. I know. (laughs) I checked. (laughs) Yes. When he's going through all his jobs. Yes. Yes. (laughs) He keeps getting fired. Because he's so like he's so adorable, but he's so ditzy. <laughs> like, yes, yes. So you're absolutely right. And um, perfect segue into some of our cast for this movie. We do have James Marsden, who plays Jack Bartlett. Um, we have Marla. So I never say her last name right. Sokoloff, um, who's Lisa, who you might remember from Full House. Um, Marley Shelton who plays Diane, and she's been in a couple of other movies, some Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez films. Um, Melissa George plays Cleo. Mina Suvari plays Kansas. And Rachel Blanchard plays Hannah, one of the cheerleaders. Alexandra Holden plays Fern, who's also in Dropped at Gorgeous. And then our last cheerleader that we see, her name is Sarah Marsh, and she plays Lucy. And they all kind of have these different nicknames for what their role is in this film and I I love films that do that I don't know why I just it's one of my things that I like really like about certain films so this film does have a really good cast a very well-known cast minus a couple people but it's still just people kept saying like it just hit them it just didn't hit all of the checks to be like this awesome movie so I think that's why it's such a kind of a cult movie for me and I love that this is one of James's earlier films and he's just precious <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah he is so adorable and can I just say one thing yeah doesn't Rachel Blanchard look exactly like Rachel yeah she she absolutely does yeah exactly like Rachel it it has always ever since I first saw like she was also in the rage Carrie too Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so was Mina Savari. And I, ever since that era, that era, like you said, where all those teen movies were coming out and there were, there were movies like this, where it was like, it was kind of like crossover thriller, crossover horror, but mostly black comedy kind of like Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. And I, ever since then, like 
it just astounds me because didn't Rachel have red hair like that at one point too? She did. Yeah, she dyed her hair red. And so um, she's always been one that I thought looked like very much like her. Yeah, it's almost spooky. Blows my mind. And I know like you have been very good friends with Rachel forever. So I'm like, if anyone's going to see it, it's Frankie. Oh, yeah, I totally see it. Like, I absolutely agree. So um, we have, yeah, just a great cast. And I love that you brought up like a lot of them have been in movies together. Um, and they had such a close relationship, even though this movie, again, didn't do very well. They, all of the interviews, everything I watched, um, like the behind the scenes, they all loved working together and just being together. And they said it was like a little, like a little fun slumber party the whole time Mm -hmm. because it was so lighthearted. Um, this movie did come out around not a so lighthearted time. And that was the Columbine High School Massacre. The film was written by Lona Williams, who is also the writer and director of Drop Dead Gorgeous. The film changed so much from her original view because they felt the need to change it after the massacre that she actually had her name removed from the film and then put her pseudonym Mandy Nelson. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see kind of like what they had from the beginning, like what her original view was. Um, I know the original movie name was actually Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics. Um, <laughs> That's actually really cute. That's a very Tarantino title. Isn't it? That's exactly what I thought. I was like, man, her and Tarantino should have gotten together. This would have been a whole different movie. I know, right? Robert Rodriguez who? <laughs> right um but um, yeah just you know with the with the massacre and everything like just to be politically correct and you know um not have guns in schools and things like that they they did make a lot of changes apparently I was not able to find the original script so if anyone has it (laughs) hey hit us up at hey soundtrack city on instagram (laughs) yeah Send it to us because you know we love things like that. So, so yeah. So I think we covered all the things. Um, this movie again did not win any. Like it didn't win any awards or anything like that. Um, it's definitely just like I said that B side type movie, but still that very. Uh, it's got that following, that cult following, if you will. Like people who know this movie know this movie and they love it. <laughs> and then those are like, oh, I kind of remember that. And then when they watch it again, they're like, oh, I forgot how funny that movie was. Or at least that's my experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, there were definitely like, there were for as many memorable scenes as there were, there were parts that I was like, holy shit, I don't remember that. It's fun because it's like you feel like you're watching it again for the first time. Yes, because I can't tell you. So I remember watching this movie at our old house in Ailey's and like dying laughing. I have not really watched it since then. Like it's come on TV a couple times, like I caught the ends of it, but I was like, you know what? I really want to do something that like just made me laugh and like was so funny and had a bomb ass soundtrack. And I came up with a couple movies and this was the one that I decided on. And as as I watched it, I was like, this is just, this movie is gold. (laughs) It's just hilarious. Like it's, it's got like some realistic parts, but then you're at the same time, you're like, this is, (laughs) this is just ridiculous. And that's what makes it so funny to me. And it definitely does have those black, like those dark moments. Um, and that's why it's kind of like a black comedy. So yeah, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into our movie. And in fact, our first song is what introduced us to our characters. We get that very typical like 
90s introduction where we see the cast. The movie opens up to show us all of the cheerleaders that are in their group and their nicknames. As this part of the movie is playing, we hear in the background, Girls, performed by Lefty. Girls hit back when you least expect where you most regret There was not a lot of information that I could find about this group, but, um, and I almost didn't put this song in here. I like, kind of thought about leaving it as an honorable mention. But I found some really interesting information about some of the band members that made me want to go ahead and leave it in here. Really, like all I could find is that they used to be a punk rock band from Newport Beach in California. I know that they have played several different shows. They've opened for people, including um, like early, early, early on, there was like they were the fourth band that opened at a really small venue for Foo Fighters. Oh, that's awesome. Right. They played um, at like all of the warp tours. They've played at several of the warp tours. They've played at lots of smaller venues. Um, and like literally I was reading all of this on like people from like YouTube and things like that, like trying to find any kind of information about them. And then they just like disappeared. That's it? Yeah, they like disappeared. They have a couple songs, but this is the most notable one. They have an album but it's kind of like they came out at the end of the like punk rock era if you will and so they didn't they didn't make it this was like their one hit wonder and like I'm, I've had a really hard time finding anything about them but they were made up of Ken Livingston, Dennis Hill, Scott Summers, and Giovanni Lorenzo. Okay, so the main reason I decided to keep this song and this band in here is because I really wanted to talk about Dennis Hill and Scotty Summers. They have this amazing foundation that I found through research called Living the Dream Foundation that helps people with cystic fibrosis. And the reason is Scotty has cystic fibrosis. They opened up this foundation to basically give people their dream day. And they take people with cystic fibrosis to all these amazing trips, whether that be like concerts or meeting their heroes, special events, things like that. They also raise funds for hospital visits, hospital bills. Um, they host like all kinds of events to continuously raise money throughout the year for people with cystic fibrosis. And I just thought that was really, really amazing that they have this awesome foundation and so I was hoping that you could possibly link that onto the blog yeah for sure it's literally livingthedreamfoundation.org yep I can send you all that information I just thought it was really cool that they are out there and raising money and you can donate and help raise money for people in your life who might have cystic fibrosis so that is the main reason why I kept this song in here because it's a really fun song it also opens up the movie in a very cute way and like I said we get to see all of our cheerleader groups and we also see them all together in their mug shots so we obviously know that something has gone awry and then as the song fades out we see Lisa who introduced herself and she is a cheerleader but she is on the b-squad and she is there ready to spill the tea about the a-squad and how they are constantly breaking cheerleader rules and how she's better than them um, to the local sheriff's department. And as she is kind of introducing everyone, she goes through all of the different cheerleaders, and we learn that 
they all kind of fit various different personality traits, if you will. Like there's the virgin, um, Diane is the leader, but she's also like the princess, if you will. Um, they call her the mastermind. Um, Cleo is the stalker. She's in love with Conan O'Brien and even goes to like therapy for it. Oh my gosh, she is hilarious. <laughs> she is. When she's in the in therapy and she's like telling them about, she's like, well, we're in this, this all other hotel and all of a sudden there's oil there. And I don't know how it got there, but I guess that's what makes it a dream. And I'm like, you're so <laughs> And I will say like, no spoilers, but her ending is my favorite. Yes, I know it is. As soon as I saw that, like I was like Misa, <laughs> just me. and hey, they're close enough. It might just right? end up <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, go on. I'm sorry. No, funny. No, no, no. You're fine. Little spoiler. Um, Kansas is the rebel, and she's like the one who curses a lot. And you know, her mom's in prison, and Lisa's telling them uh, the cops about that. Then there's Hannah, the virgin, who's like holier than thou, and. Um, Lisa says that everyone would think that she was kind of special, but she's so pretty. And so she kind of fits in. And then there's Lucy, who's the brain. And she's like the OCD, super smart one. And if you notice, when we are introduced to all of our characters, they're all kind of like um, their own color scheme, which I love how they did that throughout the movie. I don't, I'm sure you picked up on that, right? Oh, actually, I didn't. Okay, okay. But so, I didn't watch it as often as you did. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched it several times. So each of them has kind of like their own color scheme. So like Cleo is always in reds. Rachel's always, I'm, I'm sorry, Hannah's always in purples. Lucy is always in white. Um, Kansas is always in like black. And then Diane is always in like light pink or light blue. That's really cute. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch. So what do those colors symbolize as far as them? I feel like it symbolizes more of their personality. Like the one that makes the most sense to me is like Lucy because she's the brain and she's like the OCD. Like when she comes out of the bathroom, when um, Lisa's introducing them, like she bends down to like put white out on her white sneakers and like her entire room is all white and everything's like super organized. You know, like just that very type A brain. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the colors, like I couldn't find any real reason why they did that, but I thought it was just a very interesting little detail. And you know, I love those little details. Of course. So yeah. So if you guys watch it, make sure you pay attention for that. So after they get out of, um, Lisa's introducing them and they're all coming out of the bathroom and like explaining how super close they are and they're going to do their first prep rally of their senior year. They are introduced to a new quarterback who is going to be Jack Bartlett. And of course, Diane accidentally knocks him out and with one of her amazing backflips. And it's like love at first sight. And so Lisa's talking about how everyone is going crazy over Jack, but not as crazy as Diane. Turns out Jack likes Diane also. He asks her out to the homecoming game. So anyways, they are obviously in high school they're sexually active and Lisa makes that innuendo that they love football and we see them kind of you know sneaking out of different places so fast forward to our homecoming and um, Jack and Diane are getting ready and they're like the perfect little American boyfriend and girlfriend their parents are like downstairs laughing it up drinking and they come downstairs to announce that 
before they leave for homecoming, Jack wanted to let them know that they're getting married. And the parents are like, oh my God, that's so awesome. No way. Which is totally not how I think any of my friends and high school's parents would have reacted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, this was a very, this was very dreamlike. Like you kind of waited for it to be like, actually... (laughs) Right. Well, then it did happen when Diane's like, but not before I have our baby. And that's when they like flip out. And then um, they kick them out. And Diane's like, do you think your dad really meant I never want to see your effing faces ever again? He meant forever. (laughs) Oh, that's good. So Jack and Diane are like, well, they're kind of like blindsided that their parents reacted this way. Like they really thought that they would be okay, you know, kind of how they were with the wedding news. Um, But this is not how they reacted. Their parents were very upset. They kicked them out, basically leaving them homeless. But, you know, in typical teenage fashion, instead of worrying about a home then, they decide, let's go to the homecoming dance anyways. Here we are introduced to the song Glock and Pop by Spiderbeat. So this song plays as soon as they get to the homecoming dance. They, of course, take their cute little homecoming photo, and they split up to go hang out really quickly with their cheerleader group and their football group. The cheerleaders are so close. They all get their periods together, and Diane declines a tampon. And this is a huge, like, why do you not need a tampon? And so they instantly know something's going on. This song plays while they realize Diane is pregnant. And, of course, our little churchy Hannah's like, but you're not married. (laughs) And I always thought that line was so funny because I'm like, oh, you poor child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey. If only you knew. If only you knew. Spiderbait is an alternative rock band formed in New South Wales in 1991. Um, They did have a lot of hits over in Australia and South Wales. They've had several albums. And some of their albums are like really just fun names. One is like the Unfinished Spanish Galleon of Finley Lake. And the other is Ivy and the Big Apple. And I just thought those were hilarious. So... I don't know why I thought they were funny, but they were. Um, and so Glock and Pop is one of their songs, and it's kind of a very different song like than the rest of the songs in the album for Sugar and Spice, and that's why it really stood out to me. Um, they do have quite a few hits, like I said, overseas. They are very well known. They have gotten recognition here in the U.S., and they did start touring um, in 1996, they did have one of their songs play in a scene in 10 Things I Hate About You, and they did get some nominations in the ARIA Music Awards in 1997. They went on tour with Savage Garden, and they also went on tour with like some other bands that I didn't really know called Re- Regurgitator and Happy Land. Re- <laughs> I'm okay, but, but hey, Savage Garden. Right, I knew Savage Garden, so I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. (laughs) So, um, and then they did actually get charted here in the U.S. for Glock and Pop in January 2000, and they were nominated by the ARIA Music Awards, um, in which they received two nominations, 
and they won Best Cover Art for a song, Glock and Pop. It was off of their that fourth album, and like I said, it did win. The art is actually really cool. It's kind of like this, uh, like we, the little we figure like you can create. What's that called? Like a me? It looks kind of like a person like that with really cute like blush, and they're happy, and they're holding like a soda can that just says Glock and Pop, and then it's like really cute in the background. <laughs> That's cute. It is. It really. It actually is kind of adorable. So, yeah, um, and this song did reach number 80 on the Australian Singles Chart, and like I said, it was nominated. Um, it did lose to Kylie Minogue, though, and it was featured in the 2009 video game Little Big Planet for the PSP. So even though it wasn't super popular, it does have some recognition, which I thought was really cool. So, yeah, after the song plays and everyone knows that Diane is now pregnant. Um, she does get the support of her team because, again, Hannah's like, don't be a poor Anna murderer. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Okay, there's one thing about the bathroom scene that I absolutely love. I love when they all come out and they're in front of those mirrors. When Diane comes out and they all surround her, I think the framing of that shot is really pretty because even in their reflections, you can see everyone perfectly. Yes, and the lighting is fantastic. That's a really cool scene. And I love how they're like passing the tampon and all you see is their feet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that whole scene is actually really cool. It is. It's a really cool scene. And then I love how they end that scene because Diane starts like, this reminds me of a lady who ended up with baby. And, you know, of course, at first, at first you think she's like, oh, she's alluding to Mary with baby Jesus. And then it's like, Papa, don't preach. I'm in trouble deep, but I've made up my mind. I'm keeping my baby. And then all of them kind of put their heads down. Madonna. <laughs> Which is so funny to me because I'm like, even like, oh, yeah, Madonna was big in, in 2001, of course. But <laughs> it's just funny to me that they're like, isn't that an 80s song? <laughs> it is. And I always think like, what the heck? Like, that is so funny that they're like, that's a great one. <laughs> That they worship Madonna. <laughs> right? They're so serious. And it just, it, it cracks me up. It cracks me up every time I see that part. So, yeah. They decide to help Diane and, like, help her however they can. And so, um, in support, they go with them to, like, find a house because they are homeless. And they get denied their first house. They get this little shitty apartment that they start renting. And um, we see them talking to their weird manager person who's like this weird asshole he's like I don't fix shit I just manage the place and of course um Lisa does say like you know they look like they're living the dream and you know they have their own place and they're starting to work we see Jack go through several different jobs <laughs> because they cannot um he, he works at like this little taco hut place and he's like one queso burrito and then like he says like 10 million things and then he's like that'll be 30 cents <laughs> like, oh no. my god yes he can't even ring people up right no. <laughs> can't ring people up right and then he works at the chicken place where Misa quoted the line <laughs> oh my gosh okay can maybe not all high schools are the same but I was always under the impression that if you're an athlete or if you're like an extracurricular don't you have to be like making A's and B's. I was under the impression that that was the case as well because of like UIL. You know what I mean? We even had it for theater. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I failed out of two plays in my high school career. Yeah. So it's like, it just, so then it, they, then it makes me think of those movies where like the coach makes the teacher pass him so that he can play because he's just that good of a player. So he just slips through the cracks. And I feel like that's how Jack would be because remember how everyone was obsessed with him? Like they even say like the lunch ladies were obsessed with him. I feel like he, he is obviously not like he's got something there, but he's not the brightest crayon in the box. So he's going through all these jobs. And then finally he gets a job at the video rental place. Um, and he opens up with like, look, I don't know how to run your register. If you pick your ass, I'm going to tell people like, I just need a job. And he's like, I can be here after football. And of course, being in high school and being a football player, the two people who are working there are like, oh my God, he plays football, right? And they're like, so you'd get to like hang out with us. And they gave him the job instantly, which I wish that's how things work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Wouldn't that be so much easier? So um, we see Jack working and we see Diane going through like getting bigger and things like that. And then they're at the grocery store. And they are um, shopping for things. And, of course, Diane's getting really overwhelmed because of how very little money they have. And so she decides that she needs to start working also. She happens to see a sign at the grocery store for the bank. And she decides that that is what she wants to do. She wants to work there so that she can help support them. We then go into this amazing little cute montage of both of them working and Jack tracing Diane's belly on the wall to the song Ready to Go, performed by Republica. Republica is an English alternative band that was formed in 1994. Their kind of like big years were from 96 to 99. They've gone through a couple different changes, but most notably their singer, who was Samantha. She changed her name legally to Saffron. Saffron? Like the spice? And um, she's super popular in England. Like she's also... Um, an actress as well. So the current lineup is Saffron, Tim Dorney, Johnny Mayo, and Connor Lawrence. And they have actually started retouring again since 2008. They describe their sound as kind of a techno pop punk rock. And they did go on hiatus, but I'm, I'm excited that they're back. This is actually really one of the only songs that I know by them. And it's one that most people do know by them. Um, because it has been used in a couple of different movies besides Sugar and Spice. I know this song from uh, Vegas Vacation, which is yes. one of my favorite movies. And then what's funny, again, about how she directed, she wrote Drop Dead Gorgeous. I thought this was Drop Dead Gorgeous. They have a song called Drop Dead Gorgeous, and it was in Scream, remember? Yes, yes, I do. And I was just going to say that too. So yes, ex- absolutely. This <laughs> This song has been used in a couple different movies, and I also think of um, the Las Vegas vacation, like when that she's dancing on the um, like the old signs, right? Yes, they're at the Neon Museum, which is a real place, yes. and they're like dancing on the old light up signs, and this is playing in the background. It's really cool. It is. It's a really cool song. That's this is actually where I fell in love with this song because I love this song, um, and I think the so this this song has two different music videos. Um, and one of them, I don't think I've seen the original one. I've seen like clippets of it. Um, but 
one of them is like saffron jumping on like just the roof of a building and like going around in like East London and she's just looking super happy um, and doing like different sunny shots of the hidden beauty of East London is what it says. And then the other one, I haven't seen this one, but this one was directed by Ben Gross. It shows her jumping in like an empty warehouse and it's literally just like her in front of the camera. So Interesting. Right. And I don't know like what the difference was or why they decided to do that, but I thought it was interesting that this one had two, like just two complete different music videos because that's not very common. So some of the band members have also gone on to like work with other people um, and to write songs for other people as well. Um, I do know that um, Todd wrote songs for like S Club 7. I don't know if you remember them. <gasps> Wait, S Club 7. Yes, they were like that. Never awesome. had a dream come true. Yeah. Never had a dream come true was my fucking jam in the fifth grade. I don't care what anybody Shut says. Up. I am geeking out. I was all about that shit as Club Seven. <laughs> oh my god! Can we please? So they will be on the blog. Yay! <laughs> y'all, um, y'all. The nineties was so special. The nineties for music was just. Oh my god. Like if you didn't like S Club Seven or um Bewitched, I'm gonna age myself here. Like Oh my god. Oh my gosh. Like I I don't think we could have been friends because I jammed all of it. Like you Bewitched. Oh my god, that Teen Beat magazine cover just flew at my face. Oh my god, I am I'm loving it. I'm loving this nostalgic <laughs> walk down the past because like I I honestly I was I didn't know if you would know S Club Seven just because you're so much cooler than I am. <laughs> um, I don't know who told you these vicious lies, but you need to redirect. <laughs> Pause, redirect, please. Excuse? Thanks. (laughs) Dude, that shit is hilarious. Yeah, I remember S Club 7 had like, there was like S Club A, S Club Kids, S Club... Remember when I told you about Todd in the Shadows? He did a segment all about them, and he talked about all the different incarnations of them. Oh my god, I didn't realize that. Okay, that's amazing. That is amazing. So, yeah, so Todd the singer... I'm sorry, Todd from here wrote... um, some of their songs he also worked with Kylie Minogue and wrote some of her songs as well oh that's legit Kylie Minogue is coming up a a bit today huh yeah right I think it's just because like a lot of these artists happen to be English you know Australian that kind of area and so of course of course typically work with those same types of people so but yeah I just thought that was really interesting and so this song is just like the perfect jam for this cute little montage that we get of Jack and Diane trying to make it through Working and being pregnant and cheerleading and football and, you know, um, we see this really adorable scene where all the cheerleaders are walking out of the school and, of course, Diane is the head cheerleader and so she's in the front and then when the camera pans behind her, you see that her skirt doesn't fit so you can see her underwear. I think little things like that are hilarious. Um, And then we also see, like, even though things aren't always great, certain things do work out. Their apartment manager um, during this scene gives them a TV and a VCR because he needs a place to keep it. And he's like, and you don't know shit. So while they have this, they decide to watch this horrifying 
video of like a deer giving birth and Diane's just eating popcorn and smiling and Jack is like literally mortified with his mouth open and I think this is probably one of my favorite like facial scenes <laughs> of Jack because he's so cute. <laughs> It's adorable. And so after this adorable little montage, we get a little bit more into real life of what it's like for Diane. And she has all the girls over for girls night and they realize like just how busy she's been. The apartment is a mess. You know, there's stuff everywhere. And Diane's like really in her feel. She's emotional. And like Hannah offers to help clean up and she's like, don't you Martha fucking Stewart me. And so the girls are watching Point Break, which I always thought was a really weird movie choice for this group, right? Like, I don't know, just for them to like, oh, let's have a girls night. And then those personalities together, like watching Point Break. You know, I agree. But then I and I had the exact same thought process because as as they show the screen first and then you realize it's like the slumber party or whatever. And, and I remember thinking like, why would they watch an action movie? Like, da, 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 da. And, and they weren't even planning the bank robbery yet, right? Right, right, yeah. And then and then, right when I was thinking, like, why would they watch this? I think Diane's the one who's like, oh, shut up and just watch Keanu. So I think they're just staring at it. <laughs> they're not watching it. They're staring at it. <laughs> right. And then uh, Cleo's over there dreaming about Keanu's body with Conan's face. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> right? It's a mess. It's a mess. But Diane realizes during this time that maybe it's not so crazy to rob a bank. And so she convinces all of the girls that they should do this. They should watch a bunch of movies, figure out the best way to rob a bank without getting caught because all of them could use the money. It's, they're all in their senior year. They all have different reasons for wanting to kind of fulfill that dream. And she even goes so far as to say, they always teach us, like, you can reach your dreams. They never tell us how. Maybe robbing our bank is the way to do that. And at first, most of them, only two of them are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Y'all are my family. We're doing this. And that's when Diane's kind of like, I just want to give my babies a good life. And so then all of them are on board. Um, and so they all start watching different movies to research. And of course, they like come back together and talk about their synopsis. They watch Heat, they watch um, Reservoir Dogs. And Hannah watches The Apple Dumpling Gang, which I've never seen that movie. Um, but of course, Kansas is like, you're watching a fucking Apple Dumpling Gang. Like I'm over here like taking this serious and you're watching some kitty movie. And they start fighting while they're with Diane at one of her doctor appointments over the movies. And it escalates to Candace and Hannah getting into, like, a physical altercation, which I think is really funny. <laughs> one of the guys is like, can you not yell because we're not letting, like, anger into the womb? And she's like, well, how about I introduce my foot into your ass? <laughs> it's just <laughs> ridiculous. And, you know, Hannah goes so far as to say something about Candace not having a mom. And so that's where the fighting comes in. And of course, Diane is immediately called back. And so she's waiting for her ultrasound when all the rest of the girls come in and they kind of apologize. And that's when Cleo is kind of like nonchalantly holding the um, Doppler to do the ultrasound. And they realize that Diane's baby has two heads. Just kidding. She's having twins. 
And so Kansas is like, no, 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 we're still, we're not calling off anything. I know you're upset, but like, we, we need to do this because the twins, they can't not have what they need. And so Kansas decides we're going to go to the prison to visit my mom and get help from the real criminals. And so they do that. They go to prison. Kansas meets her mom. She hasn't apparently seen her in forever. And then all the girls come back and they all kind of meet with different criminals and get like their advice on what to do. They talk about robbing the bank um, the day after Christmas. They talk about, you know, making sure you have masks. One of them tells them where to go to the exterminator to get gas, which is guns. And just like lots of just regular advice that you would need for robbing a bank. And I don't know why anyone didn't think it was weird that all of these cheerleaders are coming up to visit people in the prison and why they didn't have glass between the prison and the prisoners and the um, visitors. Yeah, this is definitely a, a lax prison. Was it like maximum security or like wh- what's happening? <laughs> you know, I don't even know. I just always thought it was weird because I was like, that's not what my experience was. But maybe this was just kind of like a, I don't know, like, a, a, like you said, a lax, like, I guess like a correction facility. Would that be less lax than like a gel? Well, I mean, yeah, I know that, like, some prisons are different than others. Like, for example, like, um, what was that show that everybody used to watch? Orange is the New Black. Orange. Yeah. Like, yeah. the prisoners just walked around freely. And I remember watching it over a friend's shoulder. And I was like, there's no fucking way. Like, I watched Scared Straight. Those people are in line. And she was like, well, these are, like, minor crimes. So it depends on the crime. Yeah, but if you remember the mom in this movie, Kansas's mom shot her husband. Yeah, which is why I'm like, this should definitely be maximum security. (laughs) Right? I mean, she murdered him because he slept with the nurse while she was delivering Kansas. Right, right, right. So it's, I I don't know, movie jail. (laughs) Right, movie jail. Questions that come to my mind. The little things that I notice, I guess, that other people don't. (laughs) It causes ridiculousness. So, yeah. So the girls get all this advice and they go and visit the exterminator to try to get some guns. And of course, the exterminator looks shady as hell. And he is played by uh, someone who Misa knows from Scream, W. Earl Brown. That's right. He was Kenny the cameraman. Yes. And at first I was like, I know him. I know him. And then it hit me. (laughs) Yeah. There's like a, a nice little amalgam of like, horror movie characters and actors in here really are yeah I love that they did that too it just shows that people can be funny and you know in horror movies I like that Mm -hmm. so they go to the exterminator and they um are saying you know we need five guns and he's like all right it's gonna be 1500 and they're like whoa we can't afford that and he's like well why didn't you say so I have some real pretty rubber bands and nails on the back. They come in pastel colors. Let me go wrap them up for you. And then he gets serious again. He's like, it's $1,500 on the table. Take it or leave it. And then, of course, Hannah is like, well, what if I go and tell people that you're selling guns to minors, girl minors? And he's like, well, I would just have to kill you. And then they all start to back out because they're like, okay, this is a bad idea. And that's when he says, I have a daughter named Fern, and she's always wanted to be a cheerleader. If you put her on the team or the squad, I will give you the guns. And so he introduces Fern, and she looks a hot-ass mess at first. (laughs) Like a hot-ass mess. 
and they all kind of like, oh, we'll be right back. Let's go talk. And so they run out <laughs> to go talk. And that's when they're like, we don't really have a choice. And so they, they take some time to think about it and to let the exterminator know what they're going to do. They end up deciding, you know, we have to do this because we don't have enough money. They try to raise the money by realizing maybe we should practice a robbery. And so Diane says, we'll practice a robbery at school. Like, apparently they pay their lunch money differently than regular schools do. Like, you prepay for your food tickets. And so they decide they're going to rob that. Um, this awesome song plays during this whole practice robbery, and that is Bohemian Like You by Dandy Warhol. They set it up to look like Candace is choking, and the cafeteria worker has to help her, and that's when the other cheerleaders come to the side and, like, take the whole money box, and then the robbery is done, and then all of a sudden Candace is fine, and they she gets up and walks away. They end up counting all the money, and Lucy, of course, is like, this is ridiculous how much money they get from us, and then they take the money to the exterminator, and the song ends as they walk out with all the guns and sperm. And she looks so much better at this point, by the way. I don't know what they did to her, but she looks really cute when she's walking out to this song. <laughs> so, Bohemian Like You is a song by the American alternative rock band, the Dandy Warhols. The Dandy Warhols were formed by Courtney Taylor Taylor and guitarist Peter Holmstrom. They later added... Um, keyboardist Zaya McCabe and drummer Eric Hedford and it seems like based on my research and some interviews that I watched that Zia was dating Peter at some point but then they separated and then she was dating Courtney based on research but I don't know if that's 100% accurate or maybe she was just very open to Courtney I don't know. It was a weird dynamic in the interviews that I watched. Um, but yeah, so they've been around for quite some time and they are still touring. They are still opening up for people. They're still putting albums out. Um, they've even had different producers from like Duran Duran to um, Velvet Revolver and helping them like get their songs out there. They've opened up for like Sundance Film Festivals. Um, they're kind of like a psychedelic alt band I guess is how I would describe them would you agree I know you know the song um or at least this song by them right yeah and actually on this album the album that this song was on there's also another song that I like by them called sleep Mm -hmm. I love sleep um but yeah Mm -hmm. I would call this like kind of like alternative electro-ish I don't know how to put it. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, alternative electro-ish. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, so the album that Misa was talking about is The 13 Tells from Urban Bohemia. And that seems to be like their most popular album. Yeah, I think so too, because a lot of their top tracks are from that album. Yeah, and I know that some of the songs from there were even featured in um, other movies as well. Bohemian Like You has also been in Buffy the Vampire Slayer as well as Igby Goes Down, Flushed Away, just to name a few. But it's been in like TV sh- TV commercials. And I love, love, this is actually 
one of the videos that I think is super cute. It's like a karaoke bar music video. And so they show the band like setting up and then everyone behind in front of them is singing the song. And there's like a naked guy and it's like really random, but it's super cute and makes me miss like, you know, pre-COVID days. <laughs> Dude, the one thing that I absolutely want to do more when when we can is karaoke. We need to do karaoke. Please, please, please. I agree. But yeah, just to name a couple more, it was in The Replacement, Summer Catch, um, Little Nicky, Delirious, Man of the Year. Um, and like I said, it's been used for numerous commercials. Um, as well as like those Dancing with the Stars type shows. They did a performance to it as well as video games, such as um, PlayStation's game, Test Drive Le Mans, which I've never played and I don't know anything about. So I'm sorry if I said that wrong. And it probably in its most notable commercial was for Ford. And so that's how it got like really popular again for those people who didn't know the song when it was, I guess, kind of smaller. Like I said, they're still performing. They're still making their name known they've put out lots of albums but none of them have really charted or done anything that's made them super popular they're kind of that very b-side band if you will and i don't mean that in like a negative way so i hope no one takes it that way so to date they've released 10 studio albums two compilation albums six eps and 27 singles and the Dandy Warhols are still rocking. Um, one fun fact that I did want to say. So Courtney Taylor is actually his real name. And then one of his friends was getting married. And it turns out like the person that he, the that his friend was marrying, they both had the same last name. And so they were joking like, oh, when they get married, um, they're going to have the name Williams Williams. And he was like, I like that. And so then he went and legally added Taylor onto his name to have Taylor Taylor. <laughs> okay. It was really random and just like a really weird fact that I was like, oh, I have to share that because that's just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it must be so freeing to live like, oh, I'm just going to change my name today. Right? And just add on there, Taylor Taylor. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was ridiculous. So I was like, oh, I have to share this. <laughs> that's pretty great. So yeah, so now the girls seem like they have everything in place. They have the guns. They also have Fern, who's now going to be an extra person. Um, and they're getting ready for their big Christmas cheer show, which is huge, their senior year. And it seems like um, the A squad and the B squad come together for this ginormous cheerleading demonstration. Um, and at this time, we see that they're getting closer and closer to the heist. And so to get ready for the heist, they have another sleepover. And the girls have done the Ouija board in the past, and I'm sorry for not mentioning that. But in this scene, they are asking the Ouija board if the day after Christmas is perfect for the heist. It says yes. Then the other girls confirm, oh, the magazines say yes. Horoscope says yes. And so they realize, like, okay, this is it. We're a go. Um, Kansas opens up a package from her mom, and her mom is the one who sends them all their Betty masks that they wear. And so they're just like so excited and they start naming being like, oh, you're pregnant Betty and you're um, Terminator Betty and you're Virgin Betty. And they realize like, oh, they don't have a mask for Fern. And she says, that's okay. This is when we get like kind of a sad moment. Lucy's like, oh, well, I've decided that I'm not going to be a part of it because I got my scholarship to Harvard. And so she tells Fern, you can take my mask. At first, the team is very upset. Lucy's like, I'll turn my pom-poms. And 
they decide they have to go on without her. Then that night at Christmas, Diane and Jack exchange their gifts only to realize that Jack's gift that he gives Diane, this beautiful ring without a stone in it, he sold his car to get that for Diane, which was their getaway car. So they have to find a getaway car super fast. The only option that they come up with is Fern's dad's exterminator car that has a giant ass roach on top of it and brakes that don't work, which is so safe. This driving scene makes me a little nauseous because I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, they almost hit the cars. Um, they did a really good job of filming the scene and miraculously they make it to the grocery store with no one hurt and nothing wrecked into. They get out in these adorable Betty doll costumes. Um, and this is one of my honorable mention songs. The Breeders Cannonball plays when they walk out of the van with their white boxes with strings wrapped around them, obviously holding their guns. They're all dressed as pregnant Betty dolls because Diane would stand out. They walk to the back of the building and Cleo accidentally rips the doorknob off of the back door so they are not able to get anymore. There's this really cute scene between them and they realize we're gonna have to go into the front. And as they're walking to the front, Richard Nixon shows up where it is Lucy who decides that she can't turn her back on her family. And so they all go in together um, to rob the grocery store bank through the front doors. As they go in, there's a couple minor issues that happen, of course, because they didn't plan for certain things to go through the front door, etc. And while they're here, you see Lisa is sitting on the floor as they take over the bank. Lisa immediately realizes that they are doing a two-person lift, like incorrectly, because she's like the rule book follower. And then she even sees like a pom-pom string off of someone's shoes. Um, she does turn them into the police and it does make headlines and they're covered by like MTV. Um, Kurt Loder makes an appearance here. Conan O'Brien even talked about them and there's Cleo calls Diane to tell her, Conan talked about us again. <laughs> and then uh, Jerry Springer even covers like drag queens who like to dress like pregnant women. Um, and this all leads to them finally getting caught and arrested. And this is where Diane, the true mastermind and leader, decides she has to do what's right. And so she calls Lisa and she gets Lisa to give them an alibi. And that's how Lisa ends her scene with the police. She tells them, I know that all signs look like they point to the girls, but they, they're just innocent. They were with me because we were on our way to practice. And she is going to be named the new A-Squad captain. And our movie officially ends as Lisa takes over the A-Squad and Diane is in the bleachers watching her as captain. And then we get this really cool... 90s early 2000s typical where they are scene playing to American Girl performed by Cindy Alexander written by Tom Petty In the Where They Are scene, we see that Hannah is now um, starting her horse riding business, which is super popular. Fern has grown into her looks, and she is now a model and travels around the world. 
Kansas becomes a lawyer and gets her mom out of prison because the judge deemed that any woman in labor for over 37 hours cannot be held responsible for her actions. Lucy is seen graduating from Harvard, and after graduating, she invents a pizza box, and then she owns an island. <laughs> Cleo moves to Hollywood. She meets the producer of Scream, where she stars in Scream 8, and then she meets Conan, where they are shopping for their leather furniture in Soho. And then Lisa marries the only guy cheerleader that we're watching through the movie named Bruce, who she calls gay the entire movie, but they look very happily married. And then Diane tells Jack that she wants lottery. They apparently have four children at some point, and he becomes senator. Diane and her parents start a pregnant cheerleader foundation, so no pregnant teenager ever has to rob a bank again. And that is all shown to American Girl. In the movie, we get the cover by Cindy Alexander. She is an indie singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist. She's actually recognized on the um, NBC's Star Tomorrow, which I don't even remember hearing about. Uh, that does not sound familiar. Right. Okay, so when I was researching, I was like, what the hell is this? Um, apparently, it premiered in 2006. And it was kind of similar to, like, American Idol. And they had 92 bands that competed head-to-head. And the bands were given a chance to basically get a contract. And Cindy was one of the top five who got a contract, supposedly. But since then, she hasn't really been signed with anyone big. She's just kind of, like, on her own. And she has won a couple things from the JPF Music Awards for Best Female Rock Vocalist and a Special Achievement Pop Artist from Los Angeles Music Awards. But her cover of this song is very well known and she is a notable Tom Petty fan who is the original writer of this song, which is one of my favorite artists of all times. Like, my love for Tom Petty goes back to when I was, like, three. So I wanted to talk a little bit about him, even though he is not the one who sings the song in this movie. Tom Petty did write this song on their second album um, with his band, The Heartbreakers, in 1976. This single did not chart in the U.S. It did peak in the U.K., where it was number 40 for a couple of weeks. Um, it was re-released in 1994 as a second single on Petty's greatest hit album, and that's when it did peak at number 68 in the U.S. Cashbox Top 100, even though this song did not chart like um, you know any, any of the charts that we nor- normally talk about with those songs that are like the most notable. This is considered one of the most popular Petty songs, and it is a staple of classic rock. It's been consistently rated as his best song and one of the best rock songs of all all time. Um, it is introduced into the American Rock Library, and it has been used in several, several movies, and it was always their closing song, including their very last performance, in which Tom Petty passed away a week later. Oh, man. That was a sad day. Yeah, it really was. He's one of those awesome guys. I wish I would have gotten to, like, see him at some point in life. 
Um, there is some different theories about what the song was about. People thought it was about suicide. People thought it was about like all kinds of random things. And Tom Petty came out and said, no, it was just about me watching cars literally drive by when he lived in, in Encino. And to him, that was like his ocean. And so that was what people thought about. Um, people literally took the song way out of context. They had to correct them a lot. Mike Campbell, the guitarist, even said that it really is more like just a beautiful love song than what everyone else tried to make it out to be. So there's a lot of theories about it. Some more notable covers. Um, it's been covered by not only Cindy Alexander in this movie, but it's been covered by Taylor Swift, Def Leppard, L. King, Goo Goo Dolls, as well as Sum 41. It's also been covered by Titus Andronicus, which I've never really heard of them, but I do think this cover is pretty interesting. Frank Turner and Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, as well as the Rockabye Baby soundtrack or album, sorry. Um, so there's a lot of different covers. And again, I know Misa and I repeat this all the time, but I love when different genres and different styles cover the same song because you just get to hear all those awesome differences and how people can take it and make it a little bit different but still recognize the amazingness that it is yeah this is a good cover too definitely and um definitely one of my favorites so this is probably one of my favorite songs by tom petty and the heartbreakers and yeah so that is how our movie ends and that is my last song i do have one other honorable mention i know i mentioned um the breeders earlier my other honorable mention is Girl Power, performed by Shampoo, which is just a really cool, like, kick-ass girl anthem song. And I do have a couple fun facts before I end my part. One thing that I wanted to mention is that this movie actually has some ties to Texas, even though it was filmed in Minnesota and Lona has never been to Texas. Um, it was loosely based off of the 1999 Kingwood robbery incidences. That happened in Harris and Montgomery counties, where four teenage girls went around on a robbery spree. Huh. Okay. Okay. Um. What else, What are the details are there? Um. So basically, the girls apparently planned their crimes at Wendy's, and then they targeted specific oh. places. Um, around Kingwood, they hit up a Stop and Drive, Ryan's Bakery, Jack's Food Store, a Porter Food Store, and then like another small mom and pop store in Montgomery County. Um, they were using a Pontiac Firebird that was owned by one of the girls' fathers as a getaway car. And the girls actively robbed the stores while some of them were looked out. Maddox was the only girl who actually participated in all of the robberies out of the four girls. Um, and so she did get more time than the other girls when they were caught and arrested. Apparently, they were all from very affluent families, and this was kind of like something that they did for fun. How fucking funny. Like, how much time do you have to have on your hands to wear... Doing something for fun right. <laughs> involves, like, theft. <laughs> right? Isn't this crazy? Um, I mean, it was it, it was really, really odd to the people who it happened to because typically girls don't participate in things like this. But they actually had, like, real weapons. 
They had a 22 caliber rifle, a semi-automatic pistol, and a shotgun. And it was noted that these robberies were planned and executed, like very well planned. And that's what was that's what stuck with most of the people who endured the robberies and not just the fact that they were upper middle class females. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't that insane? Yeah. So yeah, so that's what um, this Sugar and Spice is loosely based off. And I had to include that because you know I love things like that. And then just some other random fun things. This is considered a really short movie. The movie itself is only 73 minutes, which a lot of people do when you look at reviews. They say like, oh, there just wasn't enough movie quality to make it like a better movie. Even Roger Ebert disagrees. Even he gave it three stars. This movie, like I said, was around the time, uh, like Misa said, Jawbreaker. And there were some influence from Heather's. One of the things that also stuck out to me was the character name, Jack and Diane. Lona did say that that was from the John Mellencamp song, Jack and Diane, because she was a big fan. The character of Cleo being obsessed with Conan O'Brien, that comes from personal issues with Lona Williams. She is a little obsessed with Conan because she met him when they were both working as writers on The Simpsons. Oh, that is so fucking precious. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that cute? (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, so, and that um, ends my kind of fun facts about sugar and spice. And we are done with our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. Eek, that was awesome. Good choice, Frankie. I love that soundtrack. Thanks, Misa. You know, it was actually really hard to pick all the songs. I actually originally had like, eight songs and then I was like oh no and then I had six I was like okay now you got to do some honorable mentions here (laughs) you cut yourself off (laughs) I did I was like this is way too many I don't know what you're thinking that is hilarious that was awesome good job I loved it thank you I hope you guys love the soundtrack as much as I do and if you guys haven't seen the movie in forever I highly recommend watching it um I haven't seen it on very many streaming places, but if you have my Flixer, you can watch it there. Really cool, very little commercials, and a great variety also. So you can definitely check out Miss Doubtfire as well if you don't have access to it from some other streaming site. Oh, uh, yes. And just in case, guys, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is on HBO Max. If you want to go check that out, it's there. Um, but my Flixer sounds like a pretty good uh, free alternative. So I think everyone should check that out. Yeah, awesome. All right. And I think we're good. Is there, did we want to talk about next week? We should talk about next, yeah, we should talk about our upcoming exciting news. I know, I don't know why I'm whispering. (laughs) I know, I don't know why either. It's like, it's not like a secret anymore. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So we've decided, guys, because Misa and I just love talking so much about a variety of different things. We're starting a new sub show to Soundtrack City. <laughs> and we are going to basically shoot the shit. Um, instead of being very soundtrack based, soundtrack research heavy, we are going to have a little uh, kind of side show, if you will, where we just kind of talk about movies like all these little mini rants that we go on between songs those will be extended into their own episodes (laughs) and who doesn't want to hear all of that (laughs) I mean to be fair we do have some pretty insightful questions 
We really do. I mean, we're going to hit all those hard questions. Also, like we've decided we're going to talk about the conspiracy theories. We're going to talk more about the movies in general and not so music focused. Yes, exactly. And it's going to be more like, I mean, there will be some light research here and there just so we know that we have names and dates and stuff like that, right? Um, yes, of course. But it's mostly going to be a lot of like discussion based. It's going to be a lot of opinion. Um, it's just going to be us kind of going back and forth. And that just sounds like the perfect day to me. I mean, keep an eye out for that. Our new show will be called The B-Side. Because <laughs> you know we love The B-Side. Hell yeah. Sometimes the, sometimes people like The B-Side better than The A-Side. So I think, that's, I think that's where we were going with that. You know, you're going to love The B-Side. Yeah, you're yeah. You're going to love it. And for our very first topic, do you want to tell them? No, I think you should. <laughs> Uh, for our very first episode of The B-Side, coming up very soon on this same channel, so come back and check it out, we will be discussing the magic of Adam Sandler. I'm so excited. Hell yeah, man. I've been having a lot of fun rewatching his films. I, I just, like, I'm geeking out about it because I'm really excited just to be able to, like, just talk about all his stuff. Like, Misa and I kind of b-sided our conversation the other day before filming just all about Adam's movies and the ones that we were re-watching and I'm just super excited to talk about them lots of memorable quotes are coming your way so oh god yes be ready my friend and funny voices <laughs> oh I've gotta I gotta brush up on my little Nikki voice I'm pretty good at that one <laughs> <laughs> <Shabadoo. laughs> oh my god I'm so excited so excited any Hooters, we will see you on the B side, not the flip. Oh, where's your rim shot? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it has been a blast. We hope you guys enjoyed both of our movies. Please make sure you check them out. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram. And then definitely go check out our blog because Misa does a phenomenal job for every episode of putting in all those videos and clips and fun facts for you to go and do more research. Yes, and just in case, one more time, we are at Hey Soundtrack City on Instagram, and if you click the link in our Instagram bio, you will find links to our playlist, an accumulative playlist of all the songs we've ever talked about ever, <laughs> all in one place for you on Spotify for your listening pleasure. And then we also have our blog on the link tree, uh, and you can find our podcast on all the various streaming service platforms except for title no title this was fun we hope you had fun we hope you laughed a little and we hope we introduced you or reintroduced you to some really really good music yes all right guys it has been great can't wait to see you on the b-side this is frankie and this was misa bye